This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. It's Tuesday morning, and holy cow, North Korea is now talking about maybe being willing to suspend nuclear testing. Maybe. That's yeah. a that's a start. It's a it's a big start. What is going on? A little Olympic spirit goes a very long way, apparently. That's all it took. Maybe it's the fact that uh, we didn't win as many medals as we have in 20 years, apparently. Yeah, maybe that made them feel a lot better. I think it was the cheerleading squad that came from North Korea. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mike Pence. No. Okay. Oh, wouldn't that have been great if they'd met? North Korea agrees to a freeze of nuke, nuke tests uh, and willing to hold a summit with South Korea in April. Now, apparently, what President Trump is doing is working. Maybe this goes. Maybe this goes back to your sleight of hand mm-hmm. theory yeah. that you had about him. Hey, where look he's... over here! Look over here! Ba ba ba! And he's punching you on the other side. Over the weekend, the government said there's no daylight between the South and the United States and North Korea Hold on, on which, this issue. Which government? Ours. Oh, our government. The government. Oh, the government of yeah. the world. No, of us. <laughs> Referring yeah. to us and you know our yeah. citizenship here. Our government said that there's no no daylight. daylight. Except CNN's reporting, now apparently there's, there's some daylight. But we, I guess apparently, according to our government leaders, you can't trust CNN. So maybe this isn't real. So confusing. <sighs> Who do you believe anymore? Plus, um, I don't even know what the whole story is, so we'll let Terry explain it to us. But pre- one of President Trump's past minions – Mr. Nunberg Let me just read this. has been all over the news. So former campaign aide Sam Nunberg told the Washington Post that he has been subpoenaed by special counsel Robert Mueller to appear in front of federal grand jury on Friday, but he will refuse to go. Nunberg also gave the Post a copy of his subpoena, so he's sharing the subpoena with everybody. Here's my subpoena. Uh, which seeks communications related to President Trump and nine other people. Hope Hicks, Michael Cohen, uh, Steve Bannon, Corey Lewandowski, Roger Stone. You know, the normal cast yeah, of characters that are all been investigated, indicted, interviewed, all these people. A number claims that he would be a no-show at the grand jury, will not provide these documents. He goes, let them arrest me. It seems like he really just doesn't want to search his email. He's like, it would be such a bother to go through my email. He doesn't want to go through his email, but he didn't he say he may be willing to just turn over his email? Sure. If you want to go through it, go right through it. Which is probably what they want him to do. They don't want him to go through it. Yeah, no way. Uh, Mr. Mueller should understand I'm not going in on Friday. He also plans to go on Bloomberg TV and tear up the subpoena on Friday. Uh, MSNBC, he went on because he went on CNN and MSNBC multiple times. In in like a four-hour period, he did six interviews. (laughs) On MSNBC, he suggested that Trump very well may have done something during the election. He goes, I don't know for sure. In the evening, he said he went back. MSNBC and said that uh, Robert Mueller is trying to set up a perjury case against Roger Stone, who's yeah. another one of these four. Who's former, his mentor? You know, Stone is a longtime Republican operative. His mentor, Numberg, said the case against Stone could relate to WikiLeaks, the most disloyal. Uh, he called Trump the most disloyal person you're ever going to meet, hmm. and saying based on questions he was asked by the investigators last month, he believes that Mueller is interested in something related to Trump's businesses. So he, let me get this straight. So Nunberg. Doesn't like Trump. No. Doesn't like Mueller. No. 
uh, doesn't like the CNN a- anchor that asked him if he's drunk. Drunk. He's like, <laughs> he's no, been drinking. I'm on antidepressants. Because that's all. She smelled alcohol on his breath. She said, um, "It was a weird interview, and it just seems like the Russian probe." Keeps getting strange. So he went on he, after speaking on MSNBC and CNN. He talked with J, uh, Jake Tapper on CNN, Tapper. who's one of their anchors. Tapper. And he said that uh, Carter Page was colluding with the Russians, repeating yeah. himself uh, to repeating himself to an incredulous Tapper. Tapper. Tapper was incredulous at that comment. Nunberg also expressed his frustration with Mueller's investigation, saying he feels unfairly targeted. So that yeah. happened yesterday. Wow. And it just you're like, who is this guy? Well, because he, he wasn't he wasn't like a main name, no. but he what he is he's he's kind of this nexus. Yeah. Where everyone that Mueller is investigating and talking to has emailed him, and then emails passed through him. So he just as he they, worked they want with the Trump camp, they want his emails. And then then they ask the White House to respond, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't want to go near this guy." As we've said, no collusion. He he's never worked for the White House. We don't no. want to comment on him. He was in the early part of the campaign, mm-hmm. I guess, and then he was dismissed early on. So, by the way, um, speaking of uh, shipwrecks, oh, they found a, a sunken U.S. World War II aircraft carrier. I pretty just, cool. I pulled that up to look at the pictures in the other room just a it's minute amazing. ago. It's amazing. Yeah. It's actually mesmerizing. It's like I would love to be able to just watch that while I'm driving here because I get a little mesmerized on my drive here sometimes. Until today, a stone bread bakery truck mm. uh, just about ran me over. <laughs> really? Yeah. I thought you were going to say the fumes, the bread fumes mm. almost no, knocked out. No, he was just in the wrong lane and then at the last second realized it. Yeah. And then some people would just stop. Or just go with the lane you're in. But oh. no, this guy decided he was going to make a, a, an epic change <laughs> hmm, in a right. huge bread no. truck. <laughs> but it was good because I have a really fast car. So it was all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> it's fine. I, my car's faster. I, was I, that a humble brag there? Yeah, it was a humble brag. Okay. And I, I made such a quick turn. Apparently, my uh, security card dis- jar dislodged from Flew out its the holder and I Whoa. don't know where it went. At least you could, I mean, at least it's not like me where I got a new security card and it doesn't work. Let's see it. It mm. looks like the old ones. It looks pretty much exactly like the older picture. I actually want to just see your picture. So I, I no. Yeah. Okay. Um, just so they don't use the ones they took here in the building. Those are ridiculous. It looks no, like I'm they are not. Those are fantastic. So, by the way, you've got to go see this aircraft carrier. I'll put it on uh, Twitter here in a few May minutes. May 1942, the, the carrier went down in a carrier. What's the carrier name? Do you Lexington. see the name? There you go. And on, and I guess it landed perfectly on the, on. I mean, I don't know what you call the it. The ocean floor. Completely, perfectly upright because mm. the airplanes that were on top of the carrier are still on top of the carrier. Oh, wow. Mm. It's pretty neat. Now part of a... Coral reef. Yeah. And I think um, they found uh, they found that it was near the Titanic. N- wasn't this in the yeah, Pacific? It was, in, it was near Australia. Okay. I was like, wait, hold on. I didn't know the Titanic got that far down there. It didn't. It's in the Atlantic. Right. Did they find Leo's remains? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Some okay. guy floating on a – clung to a board. There was room for both of us. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that movie all the way <laughs> yeah. through. It's a great movie. It's pretty long. I think long. I went, I know how this ends. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard to watch a movie. And then there's this whole end. story that really didn't happen. That's the diamond. But you don't, you don't know how the love story ends. Don't 
care. That was the other part of it. It's like, I just want to see the ship go down. So I kind of fast forwarded and, oh, okay, cool. And then. Oh, that's pretty morbid. That was the end of that's it. That's very morbid. Well, I mean, other than the, the love story, what else is left in that movie? Uh, the, how about the the four piece orchestra or quartet playing yeah. near my god near to my thee? god to thee? That was uh, a beautiful that's, moment. That's great. That's actually what I want to happen at my funeral. Well, you you want to tune in to see if the unsinkable Molly Brown is really unsinkable. Did she sink or didn't she? Yeah. You want to see how Billy Zane uses his cowardice? Yeah. To how, get out to get off the ship. How does he use his cowardice? That's the question. Man, how is that <laughs> movie so popular? Because. It has what's his name, mm. the hot Leo. stud Leo, yeah. and he's he's you know king of the world. Okay, it came out during a time mm. when a it was time? it was focused on teenage girls who had just unlimited funds that oh, just yeah, kept yeah, yeah. going to okay. see it again and again and again. My wife did see it about three times. Yeah, well, yeah. Who did? Yeah. Me. Speaking of unlimited funds, let's get to the headlines and see what else is going on in the world. The if 2018 election officially kicks off today, Matt. The Texas primaries oh, are today. Really? It's great. Here we go. Uh, both parties watching for indications of how the battle to control Congress may play out in November. Democrats are hoping for strong early voting by their party faithful as a prediction of a blue wave of enthusiasm. About double the amount of people who voted early in these specific counties they're looking at. Double the amount. Whereas it's only about 15% or more for the Republicans. But the Republicans had more people vote last time, yeah. so it's, it doesn't, it's, who knows? it's a wash. So everyone's looking at different indicators. Republicans hope Texas stays true to its red roots and quells any rising tide. This year also the first time in 25 years that Democrats are running someone in every open possible race. Wow. Usually you got a bunch running on... Dog catcher. Dog catcher. Everyone has an opponent. Tuesday night could be the beginning of a watershed year for women running for and potentially winning public office as you have Republican women and Democratic women running all yeah. across the state also. Nothing Republican lawmakers on Monday pressured President Trump to reverse course on his plan to impose steep tariffs on imports of steel and aluminum, arguing it threatens the U.S. economy and GOP majorities in Congress. Speaker Paul Ryan has lobbied Trump to reconsider the tariffs by sharing his concern personally with the president on multiple occasions, according to his office in Paul Ryan's uh, district, uh, Harley-Davidson. Really? So he's kind of concerned how they're going to raise tariffs on you know, someone yeah. in his district. Uh, the House Ways and Means Committee also jumped into the fight, drafting a letter urging Trump to narrowly tailor the tariffs so that they only affect unfairly traded products. Members are in the process of collecting more signatures before sending a letter to the White House, according to the committee aide. The Senate Finance Committee sent a similar letter to uh, the White House and a number of influential conservative outside groups, including Club for Growth and Freedom Works, have ripped into the proposal in a frantic last-minute push to convince Trump to either scale back or ditch the plan before it's finalized. <laughs> so is he just he's just using these tariff idea to get some movement on NAFTA. A new a new trade agreement Possibly. with the world. Possibly. And meanwhile He might just be reacting to the news of last week, yeah, which he may is just really be bad. having a bad morning. <laughs> but he no matter what, he also is maybe irking and ticking off quite a few Congress right. people because their now the constituents. the steel issues with China, the 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 claim I'm not because I'm not sure what the, what it is, but they're dumping bad steel on the market, cheap steel, and it drives the U.S. price down, and it's unfair, you know, trade practices. Yeah, but we also trade with. 
Turkey, and there's like three or four other countries that also produce steel. Yeah. That we have deals with them, and it's not unfair with them. The trade, you know, uh, yeah. surplus isn't a isn't a problem, but we're affecting all of them also. That's okay. why you need to target the tariff, not just say the entire planet. How many times has Jeff been telling us to target the tariff? Target though? the tariff. Mm-hmm. Target it. Mm-hmm. I'm just passing down what my grandmother told me. Your grandma knew a lot about mm-hmm. tariffs. President Trump met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What do they call him? Bibi. Bibi, there we go. At the White House on Monday to discuss a host of contentious Middle East issues, including Jerusalem, Iran, reviving peace efforts with the Palestinians. After discussion, the uh, two leaders presented a unified front with Trump saying he might travel to Jerusalem for the opening of the new U.S. embassy he ordered to be set up in the Holy City after he ordered it moved from Tel Aviv, which goes back to another concern they had there. The Palestinians don't want to talk to him anymore because it looks like Trump is siding with Israel. Oh, boy. So there's that going on. Yeah. Uh, Trump's comments amounted to a key show of support for Netanyahu, was battling corruption and bribery charges back home. And he says he's innocent, but they, they have evidence. We'll they always do. Uh, the West Virginia teacher strike will reportedly drag yeah. into today. No deal has been reached. Uh, so just revisiting the numbers. Public schools in the state's 55 counties will stay closed, uh, affecting nearly 270,000 students and 35,000 employees. Wow. And it comes down to the governor said 5%. Give them 5%. Just give them 5%, you The guys. majority of the legislature is like, okay, well, yeah. they, they, they said 4 but they're probably good with 5 There's 19 senators in West Virginia who don't want to give them 5 The The senators passed a bill at 4%. I mean, they want 5%. The governor said 5%. Give them 5 Just give them 5%. We can get these kids back to school. 4% they gave them. Yeah. And then there's some health care issues. Yeah. Because, you know, health care. You know, there always is. So we'll see. Uh, finally, Russian officials have created a protected segment of the internet. According what? to this uh, Reuters yeah. report. In preparation for the possibility that Western nations will kick the country out of the global internet as punishment for interfering in foreign elections. It's not just our election. It's... Multiple countries around around all of Europe. Well, by the way, if you don't have to really worry about your own elections, right? You would just instead worry about everyone else's elections. Reuters reports that German uh, German Klemenko, a top advisor to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, discussed the preparations in a televised interview on Monday. He goes, "Yes, you can just push a button and turn a country into an outcast." He told state-controlled TV. I'm not sure if you can actually do that. Just push a button and shut a, hmm. a country out of the global internet. Don't you wonder what that button looks like? Mm. Is it like a red button? It, it should be a red button. Light I think, it's, in it? I think or, it's more of a toggle. Yeah, just toggle. Can you hit that toggle for a minute? So some guy just bored in an office is flipping <laughs> someone on and off the internet. Turning. Yeah. Why does it keep buffering? But technically, we're ready for any action. He says preparations include creating a special segment of the internet that is protected by a firewall accessible only by Russian-approved devices. Russians could also use state-sponsored social media networks, search engines, and advertising networks. Even if they declare such a war on us, there is no evidence we wouldn't be able to live well and normally, he says. Hmm. So they have their own internet, apparently. Oh, boy. Everybody's getting something. <laughs> and I just uh, had a little website problem yesterday. Really? On the Matt Townsend Internet? And I'm not going to name names, but then I called my provider mm. to figure out how my site had been, you know, got, I don't want to give too much information, right. but had been the, dif- the difficulties, right. And then they referred me to a, apparently a Russian company. That actually is probably American, but 
but they acted a lot like Russians in the 40s. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and then I got... Did they call you Tavarish? Exactly. What does that yeah. mean? Because they kept saying that. It's like friend. Yeah, yeah. friend. So they kind of shook me down and said, hey, we can fix all of this mm. for about 100 bucks a month. Really, 150 would be better. Isn't there just... Are they going to fix it once or no, is it well, a constant it's, fix? Or? Well, it's got to be a constant fix because they have to constantly scan the hmm. security of my site. And by doing so, they would pretty much wink, wink, guarantee, wink, that there won't wink, wink, be any more <laughs> wink problems, wink. Huh. It was really fun. It reminded me. Have you guys seen The Godfather? Yes, I have. There's a lot like that. I still have not seen The Godfather. Yeah, it was a lot like that. It isn't. <gasps> My my first watching of that movie, yeah, it seemed like there was this wedding, yeah, and then just a large portion of time spent walking into an office asking for favors and I'm going, you know, you're a friend of mine. <laughs> I was like, what are yeah. we doing? No, that's it. That's it. Did but, they say Tavarish? They did too. Mm-hmm. So you had that sort of feeling with this oh, yeah. internet uh-huh. company that was trying to help you. And meanwhile, you. on the other phone, I had. Um, my own really good friend that is a web internet security hacker hmm. that runs a company that hacks companies. Security expert. He really is full on as bad to the bone as they get. So he's and a he's hack. like, yeah, don't go near those people. Those people are not good for you. <laughs> Just send us you gift cards. You don't need their – you don't need their – so it's almost like he works with the white suits, right? Mm, he's the white the, hats. He's the white hat guy. Yeah. And I'm trying. I'm talking to the black hat guy, right? But the black hat pretends to be a corporation in America that protects websites, right? That everyone would know the name of, sure. But I'm not naming names. And he was one of them was shaking me down for twelve hundred dollars. Is it the company that comes preloaded on computers? I'm not going to name any names. Totally, is they're Kremlin based. At least that's what the Congress (sighs) thinks. Go ahead. If you do that, you get on Congress's radar. You don't want that. No, this this is this is a web. Secure site security company. Ah. Unbelievable. Anyway, just you don't know who to trust anymore is what I'm saying. Did they ask for payment in gift cards? No, they asked for payment immediately or only, only my whole website would collapse. Only the police ask for payment in gift cards. That seems to be the biggest scam now. The biggest indicator of a scam is if they want it in like Amazon gift cards or yeah. some grocery store or something like Don't do it. Don't, Can you pay me in babysitting? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, they also uh, – I'm also mad at my own web hosting company who turned me over to these dragons. And what was their name again? I'm not going to name okay. their name either, but it rhymes with two blowst. Mm. Anyway, um, today we're going to be talking about how working parents can feel less overwhelmed, more in control because the list goes on and on and on of what you've got to get done every day if you you know care about your kids, Right. You got to still help them with their grades, their school, all of this stuff. And meanwhile, make your business work. So we'll be talking to a True Blue expert. I wrote an article on HBR, Harvard Business Review. She's going to walk us through the the keys to uh, feeling less overwhelmed. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, in today's 
uh, economy and world. It's a hard thing that we've all got to battle with this idea that we have to somehow, you know, go to work every day, balance our career and still progress and, and go, you know, make a difference in this world while at the same time trying to figure out how to take care of our family needs, our, our kids' needs. So here to speak with us today is the founder and CEO of WorkParent, a company that provides advice and solutions to working parents and the organizations that employ them. Daisy Wademan Dowling is um, is with us, and she also uh, is um, been involved in an article and part of an article that we talked about and read about on how working parents can feel less overwhelmed and more in control. You can find that on Harvard Business review.org. Daisy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is, um, boy, oh boy, are we not all being pulled in 10 different directions? We love our kids to death and we love our careers. We want to make them work. And sometimes it seems like they don't always go together. Absolutely. It's one of the great challenges of modern adult life. There's 52 million Americans dealing with this challenge, going to work every day, trying to earn a living, keep their family stable and earn money for what's ahead uh, and, and do well at work and enjoy it. And then coming home and having children who need to be taken care of and wanting to have a great relationship within the family and with your kids. And those are two things that feel very distinct. They feel very separate. It's hard to figure out how to integrate those and to succeed at both on your own terms. Is it is this something that worries corporations? I mean, we we kind of we we get a sense sometimes that the corporation only cares about just get your job done, just get your job done. But it seems like with your organization, you try to actually influence both the parents and the employers. Absolutely. I think this is something that's becoming top of mind for a lot of organizations and will continue to do so. So there's been a lot of press recently about organizations that are shifting their policies and their programs to provide longer parental leaves, for example. I think that's just one sign, one indication of some of the concern inside human resources organizations, inside senior executive suites, about the fact that so many of the people, again, just a huge number of Americans in this country, uh, people in this country, are grappling with this challenge. And we all know anybody who has handled a job, who's been focused on their career, and who has had or has now kids at home, knows how difficult it is to show up and be present when you've been up maybe all night with a kid who's sick, or you're working to get your 10-year-old ready for a big test tomorrow, but you have a work deadline at the same time. Mm. We've all been there. We've all grappled with that. And I think that's becoming more top of mind for organizations. Working parenthood has really changed in the past 10 to 15 years, too. So this issue is becoming more present and more concerning. If you think about your own parents, or even think about 20 years ago, what working parents had to go through, we didn't have smartphones. So this expectation of being on all the time, constantly reachable by your clients or your managers or your colleagues, wasn't there. The world was a different place. It was hard then to be a working parent, but the challenge has even increased now and will likely continue to, which is why there's more focus on this. And I think that's exciting. I do too. I, I mean, especially because we, we also see more and more people stressed, more children even stressed. And I'm, I'm sure when I'm stressed at work and overwhelmed thinking about home, not as much as getting done. What what can we do about it? I know you have great advice about uh, how we can feel less overwhelmed or less or more in control. What are some what are some pieces of advice that you give to struggling uh, parents? 
Absolutely. There are a couple of really powerful pieces of advice. And I should say before I describe them that all the advice that I give comes from other working parents. So I'm a working mother like everybody else. I like to joke that I founded this company because I wanted its services for me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I've, I've made every mistake in the book, but everything that I advise is from the wisdom of other people who have been there and done that. Now, one of the the great insights that I got about two years ago from a um, fellow working parent um, was the idea of being intentional in what you do. So if you're running an organization or a team within your company, you likely have a very fixed idea of what you want to get done this year. You have sales targets. You have things you want to complete by the end of 2018. Likewise, in other areas of your life, in your marriage, um, in your own health and wellness, you have a fixed point on the horizon that you want to go to. You want to have a long and healthy and strong marriage, for example, and you do certain things to get there. Well, it's very easy for working parents to get caught up in this constant treadmill. Every day requires new fires to be put out. There's emergencies. Your kid is sick. There's a big big deadline at work. Your regular caregiver can't make it that day. And you're constantly dealing with these sort of low-grade emergencies that just make you very stressed out and require all of your energy. When you talk to any working parent, they'll say, I feel like I'm just keeping my head above water. If you're intentional, if you can take a step back and think, what do I really want to accomplish in my working parenthood? That will help reduce your stress level and help you allocate your time towards what's important. So to give a particular example, let's say that I want to raise, I have two children. Let's say I want to raise them to be healthy, economically self-sufficient adults who are really connected to their family heritage and to our family faith practices. Mm. That's just an example. It could be a different statement for any one of us, right? Depending on what's important and congruent to our values. Now, but if I have that statement, if I know that's where I want to go with working parenthood, I will make certain that I spend the time on the weekends to sit down and to teach my kids about money and use their allowance to help them figure out budgeting. I will make certain to tell them stories about our family's history. I will make certain to take them to Sunday school, for example. But I won't beat myself up about not making it to every soccer game. Because in the statement I just said, in in my goal, having my kids become, you know, varsity level or Olympic level soccer players isn't part of it. Mm. It's great. It's great if I can go and cheer them on. But I'm not going to have that sense of constant emergency and of always falling down because I'll know where to put my time. And I'll know that everything that I'm doing as a working parent is really congruent with my values. I love that. And then it's um, this, this statement there. Who, who was it? Nietzsche? Uh, somebody said it's easy to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside. And this, so this statement is one that helps us really identify clearly what our yeses are. And we can't have everything can't be a yes. Right. It's, exactly. At some point. So if I know if it's going to be about, you know, raising healthy kids that are productive and healthy and connected to our faith system, then I've pretty much identified my yeses. Everything else um, is is maybe not as relevant to to our life. Exactly. It can be an occasional. It can be something yeah. you do if you you can get the, the afternoon from work, go see the soccer game. But then it'll be something you enjoy. And all of a sudden you go from being very stressed and feeling crunched all the time to feeling like you're in the driver's seat, like you have control, like things are lining up in the direction you want them to go. And that everything else on top of that can be a benefit, a plus. And, and it makes it so I don't, like you said, I don't have to feel guilty about everything. 
I, I guess if there's going to be guilt, it would be guilty about not doing the things that I say are the imperatives. Exactly. You know, it's, it's funny you say guilt. Guilt is a, an overwhelming emotion for so many working oh, parents. Yeah. And it comes from a good place. People who want to do well at work, they don't want to let their teammates down. They want to deliver great performance. They want to push ahead in their careers. They also want to be terrific mothers and fathers. They want to be present for their children. And those two things come into conflict, or they feel as if they come into conflict when you're traveling for business, for example. You might be doing a great thing for work, but you feel like you're letting the other side down. And you hear that again and again with working parents. So a lot of the tricks that I recommend are about how to not just shelve your sense of guilt, because that's impossible to just tell somebody, hey, stop feeling guilty, right? right? That typically doesn't work for any of us. But to give them some of the techniques that make them feel like, I'm not dropping the ball in either of these places. I'm doing okay, and I'm, I can be proud of what I'm doing because both of those things are valid and important to me. What would you recommend as you're kind of putting this this uh, purpose statement together? Is there anything that's critical that, that needs to be in that purpose? Yeah. So uh, the easiest way to think about your purpose is to think about the outcome, right? So flash forward 20 years. Most of us have kids who are with us for 18 or so years. But once they're independent or somewhat independent, what do you want them to look like? What do you want them to be capable of? What do you want them to have taken with you out of your household and out of your work ethic also and brought with them into their own adulthood? And if you can flash forward like that, you'll begin to develop some of the adjectives and some of the descriptors that will let you put together that purpose statement. That's great. And then once we have the purpose statement, then your next point, I guess, is invest your time accordingly. Put your time into that statement. Exactly, exactly. There's there's a good saying in the business world um, and in the finance world where I've spent a good part of my career that you should invest your time like money. And I, I think it's a funny statement in some ways, but it's very apt here. Think about how your calendar aligns with what you want to get done. And there's a technique that I recommend to every working parent, um, regardless of how old their children are or where they are in this journey, that every Friday afternoon or whenever it's convenient for you, but where you can be a bit reflective and step back and look at the week as a whole or even a month as a whole, but preferably a week. Look back over the week that you've spent and say to yourself, by looking at your Outlook or Google Calendar, say to yourself, were all the meetings and all the tasks and all the projects that I did this week, did they line up against what I want to accomplish as a working parent? How else could I have used my time? And you take that perspective, and then you flash forward to the week that's coming. You look ahead at the next Google Calendar week, and you say, hmm, okay, do I need to be at this meeting, or can I delegate that to somebody else? What's going to be important in my children's lives that I want to make time for this week? And does that mean that I'm going to have to readjust or work a little bit at home in the evening to get there? And it lets you call your calendar and really focus on the essentials. And again, lessen that sense of stress and to get more punch for the time that you're spending on things. Oh, man, which is so desperately needed. Um, Again, we're speaking with Daisy Wademan Dowling, who uh, is the founder and CEO of WorkParent, which is a company that provides advice and solutions to working parents and to organizations that employ them. She also um, is a, uh, a writer and has written for Harvard Business Review. So if you go there, you can just look up her name, Daisy Wademan Dowling, and find many articles Basically, everything you can imagine about parenting and uh, and your work life. 
Um, Daisy, is it – I mean one of the things I know you talk about too is a lot of us make a to-do list, but you you actually focus on the need to make a got-it-done got list, to actually focus on everything you've done. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite techniques to do with working parents when I'm coaching or I'm, when I'm teaching a group is I ask everybody to get out their to-do list, however they keep that, on their iPhone, on pieces of paper, on Post-it notes all over their office, and say, how do you feel about it? Now, there's very few working parents who don't feel totally overwhelmed by their to-do list, right? Because it goes from everything, help your child get ready for school the next day, um, you know, get lunch into the lunch boxes, uh, make certain I get to the soccer game if that's important to me. Um, but then all the things you have to go on at work, you know, get the budget numbers done, make the big presentation, follow up with so-and-so who didn't call me back. It's so totally overwhelming. And that's, it's a very daunting feeling. It's a very tiring feeling. And it, it just makes you feel like you're on your back foot all the time. Mm. Instead, get out a completely clean new sheet of paper, whether that's an actual sheet of paper or on an electronic device, and make a list of all the things you've accomplished in the past month, whether that's a work accomplishment, getting a big project across the line, coming in under budget on something that you um, had to do, you weren't sure you were able to, whatever you're proud of at work, and then also things at home. It could be something as simple as, I ate dinner with my kids five nights out of five last week. Right. Yeah. And when you look at that list, you'll realize, yes, I do have a daunting set of things that have yet to be done and that I need to focus on and do. And I don't want to drop those balls, but I'm doing pretty well and I'm doing things that are important and things that I can be proud of. And all of a sudden, you can even see when I teach this in a classroom setting, you can even see people start to sit up a little bit straighter and see their body language change because they have a deep sense of satisfaction and of accomplishment, which is something that's very important over the long term. Because there is a real effect that uh, researchers talk about where we tend to only focus on what needs to be done and, and we tend to undermine or under evaluate or appreciate what we have done. Exactly, exactly. All of the research psychology shows that the human mind basically gets very stressed out and has a difficult time with things that aren't completed. If you think about where you like to devote your time, you like to be able to check things off your list and feel like, I've got it, it's done, it's in the rearview mirror already. But having things that are incomplete, that are yet ahead of you, just it's a little bit crazy-making. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure the research psychologists would use that term, but I will. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. It's a good term. Another thing that you bring up that oh, I thought was such a – it just is a no-brainer, brilliant idea is um, the, the fact that we need more power outages. And sometimes you know, if the power goes out, we all have to take a break to some degree, but you're saying scheduled power outages where you're just going to be out of pocket, out of power. Absolutely. Everybody has to step off the fast treadmill at some point. And when I talk to working parents who are really stressed, who are at the edge, it's usually because they feel like there's no off switch. They have to be on all the time. They're constantly going, they're exhausted, and the speed just keeps picking up further and further and further. What is really important, and I advocate in multiple different ways, including this idea of a powder out, outage, is the idea of giving yourself micro breaks. 
in an intense job, if you've got three kids at home, you're not going to be able to just push yourself back and say, you know what, I'm taking the day off and just going to spend the time on me. It's hard to even schedule vacations in the course of a year. Those things you don't necessarily have control over, right? They're big. Right. But you absolutely have control over the small. It might be as little as 15 minutes to just say, you know what, I'm going to put my iPhone or my uh, laptop into the drawer, close the drawer, and I'm going to dance the hokey pokey with my two toddlers Hmm. for the next 15 minutes. Or sit down and have a family meal together for half an hour. The world will keep going. You'll pick up immediately if you need to right after that 15 minutes or 30 minutes. But it will give you a really, really powerful sense of having reconnected with home, with your kids, of having unplugged, of being able to restock your own personal energies in a way. But at the same time, no work project will really, truly fall apart in those 15 minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. You're not going to... You're not going to lose half of what you think you're going to lose. Talk to us, Daisy, as we wrap this up. Um, If there's one thing that parents can do today, just the one thing that would make the biggest impact on really giving them a sense that they are more in control and, and that would diminish the stress, what would you recommend that one thing be? Yeah. So one technique that I advise to everybody is the concept of a family meal. So You're at work all day. Your time is not your own. You have tons of pressures on you. You come home. You may have other pressures and things you have to do at home as well. But the idea, and it's related to this idea of being able to unplug a little bit, but of having a discipline, it doesn't have to be every single day. It doesn't have to be the same meal. It doesn't have to be a family dinner. But of having a routine where everybody, kids, adults in your home, come together and sit down to enjoy each other's company is really powerful. And the way to amp that power up even further is by doing things like putting your devices in a drawer so that you won't be bothered by them, by giving everybody at the meal a job so everybody contributes to the meal and they feel like they're part of it, they have some ownership yeah. in it, even if, even if that's your two-year-old putting napkins on the table. And that you then have some sort of structured conversation when you sit down. Everybody shares something that they're proud of that another member of the family has done, for example. Again, it might be 20 minutes, but being able to do that once a week, even if it's over a microwave pizza, will make you feel so much more satisfied as a working parent. Good stuff. Daisy Dowling, uh, we appreciate you. Daisy Wademan Dowling is her name. And if you go to Harvard Business Review, again, uh, a lot of wonderful articles about how to integrate your family life into your workplace. Um, And the one we've been talking about, how working parents can feel less overwhelmed and more in control. Powerful stuff. Up next, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner to continue this discussion about how to truly feel um, a sense of satisfaction in in how you're managing your family. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love stronger and lead healthier lives. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, it's it's interesting to me with uh, having Daisy Dowling on because she's she's a big league consultant, right? And um, works with uh, organizations all over the place, trying to do what she can to help them build a healthier uh, organization, an organization that actually has um, kind of more integration into family life, 
and um, and and just a healthier type of of lifestyle. So, I, I, part of what I found and notice the last thing she said, one of the great things that every one of us could do better is simply just having a family meal. The research behind family meals, we talk about it on the show all of the time. It really is it's it's unprecedented in the little bit of time that that one activity takes and the impact it has on uh, on your family long term, even to the impact of keeping your children more integrated, uh, healthier, um, less deviant behavior for families that are able to just string together a family meal. And again, I don't think it matters what you eat. I don't think it matters even necessarily how much time you make for it as much as that you sit down with your kids regularly. It doesn't even have to be every single day. But if you could sit down regularly with your kids, have some time with them, and then engage a conversation with them you will see that one thing pay huge dividends. And so if you're if you're discouraged because, oh, I can't keep up with it, I can't do it all, or, you know, I don't get home until 7 and my kids were really hungry, then figure out a way for them to get a snack, even a bigger snack right after school, and then have a little bit later dinner just so you can sit down, turn off the technology, and have that moment. The the researchers say it's it's essential, but more importantly, I think you'll find out your kids, your spouse, your family would say it's essential as well. And if all we could do is figure out a way to do that two or three times a month or a week, how cool would that be? How big of an impact could that have on the people you love? So again, simple little solutions. And one of the things I would really suggest as a kind of overarching principle to all of this is remember that just maybe focus on progress, not perfection. It doesn't need to be the perfect meal. It doesn't need to be just whole foods. It doesn't need to be anything that is keeping you from making that meal. It needs to be some progress in your lifestyle and in your life and and improving the way you live. I think a lot of us are so caught up in it, wanting it to be perfect, wanting it to be the perfect time, the perfect place. Nobody fights. We have topics to discuss when in reality, just simply making a tiny bit of progress would take us a very, very long way. Sometimes, too, that little tiny, tiny bit of progress might actually lead us to some momentum that would lead us to more progress. So instead of getting so hung up on it needing to be perfect, let's just get hung up on having a little bit of progress. You could even ask yourself, what's the least, the minimal amount of action or movement I could take today? What is the least, the smallest thing I could do today to start to make progress toward the goals that I want with my marriage and my family? What's the smallest thing I could do? And it might simply be get to, you know, get a, a list for your shopping, for your food and groceries made. And you can do that while you're watching a show. But that might be all you have to do today is get the list made. And then tomorrow, what's the, what's the least, you know, the smallest activity I could do tomorrow to have the greatest impact? And if we would just slowly start making small incremental steps, I think what we'd end up finding is progress is being made. So it's easy. It really is easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to think that we aren't good enough. It's easy to compare ourselves to everyone else. And then it's easy to kind of wallow in our guilt and our lack of movement. 
Um, by the way, it's just as easy to also just do the easiest thing you can do today and let it take you to the next step. You know, once you get one step done, see if you can't ask the question again and get to a second step or a third step. Anyway, just a basic little uh, tool that I've been finding makes a huge difference in my own life in uh, also bringing me some peace of mind and the closeness to my family. Little coach's corner for you, folks. Again, we can't force you to do it. We can just bring you the ideas. That's the goal of the show to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, more and more prices of homes keep going up, and especially if you want a really nice, crazy, eclectic home. Yeah, this one's crazy. It's uh, known as the priciest home in America, most expensive home in America. Wow. It's in Los Angeles. It'll go on the market later this year. Niall uh, Niami, the developer known for such epic real estate offerings as the 100 million Opus in Beverly Hills, recently yeah. Uh, down, downgraded $77 million. So now it's a deal. Ooh, he can't move the house hey, now. So. Folks, it's... That takes it to a whole other price level. Now yeah, yeah. I'm It'll show up in all sorts of listings now. He's working on his next project called The One. It's in Bel Air. Oh, wow. Uh, working on it for several years. The $500 million home, 105 square feet, Giga Mansion, as they're calling it. It's the size of two White Houses. Uh, will indeed likely be the only one of its kind, seeing as L.A. has tightened up building regulations since he started working on the uh, the home. Uh, the one is, as he said, made for the one. It's, it's for, the, for the one person the that one can afford person. it. Yeah. So he says, uh, well, it says, reads the tagline of a promotional video for the house featuring a wealthy host with a red Ferrari hosting a party with many beautiful women. So this is the... The uh, wow. the image he's presenting is, yeah. this is your house. This is what will happen in this house. You'll have a Ferrari, and there'll be crazy parties. And, and you know. everybody would would be your friend. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. I'm not buying it. No. So he says uh, most of his clients, typically single men who have made millions or billions in tech, finance, or oil, are just normal dudes. Normal dudes who he hopes aspire to own a home with walls and ceilings made out of aquariums full of jellyfish, the one also includes its own indoor-outdoor nightclub, four-lane bowling alley, 40-seat movie theater, four pools, including the largest indoor pool in California, wow. panoramic views of the city, and a moat that surrounds the property. I've well, always wanted a moat. Yeah. You know, you can't not have a moat. No. And a two-bedroom, two-home, or two-bedroom, two-bath, 848-square-foot uh, home near Silicon Valley. Yeah. In two days, it sold in two days on the market two bedroom. for $2 million. Oh. It's 848 square feet. But did it have a moat? No. Hmm. It had been listed at one at $1.4 million. So I'll it just, sold for $2,358 per, $2, per square foot. I'll just keep waiting and save up for the moat. Yeah, I think I'm just going to buy a small house. Crazy, crazy numbers. Hey, uh, so much more. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. 
Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry, the gang. We have collected ourselves and uh, put together, I think, a home run of a show. Yeah. We're talking about quirky people. So we're talking about ourselves. Yes, we are. And uh, I've got a great guest coming on that has done extensive research on, on people who were kind of seen as kind of quirky, maybe antisocial. They, many would think they were just antisocial. But uh, uh, Elon Musk is on the list. Musk. Musk, Musk, baby. Uh, also, Albert Einstein on the list. Steve it's Jobs. Because that tongue picture. Yeah. But uh, apparently, a lot of the the uh, these incredible innovators they they're quirky, but they also um, it just it was amazing. Seven out of the eight people she researched ended up really li- loving being alone. Oh yeah, not even necessarily just introverted. But they actually found that they got more creative in their thinking because they were alone. Hmm. Sometimes when you're with other people, it makes your independent thinking go down because you kind of start thinking group mentality. But uh, these people, a little quirky. Could I use that as a uh, reason? No. Because no. I'm worried about groupthink. I don't want to associate with you. Yeah, that's not your problem. You oh. just do not like human beings. All right, well. That's different. You know? But that would be a better cover. I could carry this no, book with me. a lot better cover. And say, in this book, yeah. it says, and then <laughs> well, use that. You need to you need to produce some type of equation or uh, yeah, technology. You, you, you'd have to, you know, or send something to the moon. Yeah. I, I couldn't just Mars. be a random person that says this. I have to do something. No. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. A lot of it's about results. You got to get some results. So we'll be talking <laughs> about that a little bit later. Plus, uh, speaking of quirky, um, Nunberg, what's his first name? He's he's all over the media cycle and circuit. He is Sam. Sam Nunberg. No relation to Sam Nunn, who used to work, I think, for the Bush administration. Hmm. But Nunberg uh, is is telling Mueller, the investigator of the Russia, in, uh, you know, collusion with President Trump. Hmm. He's saying, "I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming to your subpoena. You can subpoena me all you want. I'm not coming." And then Nun- he he went on six TV shows last night. Yeah. Either called in on the phone or appeared no. live. Yeah, I'm not doing it. One of them accused him of smelling of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just really a very strange. Set of interviews. And then it's, overnight, the Associated Press spoke with him, and he says he's probably going to end up talking to the investigators and cooperating. So mm-hmm. ever, yesterday was just, you know. It was a weird day. It was weird. Who it's interesting. one of those? Because Nunberg, I'm pretty sure, means non-entity. Really? Isn't that, isn't that the equivalent of non-entity? I thought. Like when you're going to school and people would call you a Nunberg? Well, mm. I, I don't remember um, Nunberger. A nothing. Oh, maybe it was a yeah. Yeah, mm, that was pre- that yeah. was Hillary. I almost said President Clinton. That was Hillary Clinton's <laughs> nothing burger statement. Okay. And then, do you remember? There's the old iceberg saying, "Hey, is there an iceberg?" And someone's like, "No, it's a Nunberg." Ah. Remember? No, I think the old saying, "Hey, uh, did you have that iceberg lettuce?" Yeah. Oh well, then you're going to get violently ill, Terry South. Oh, I don't remember that one. No, that was contaminated uh, 
What kind of lettuce was that? Uh, it was a different kind of lettuce. Yeah. Um. By the way, there's a, in Politico this morning, they had this interest. Actually, it was the Washington Post. Uh, Susan McDougal, she's a former business associate yeah. of Bill Clinton, spent 18 months in prison for doing what Nunberg is threatening to do, or at least was. Yeah. Now he seems to be walking it back. She said in an interview Monday that she would not do anything differently, though Nunberg should know that being incarcerated is no joke. She said she was moved from facility to facility and spent a good deal of time in isolation. It's not an easy thing to do, she said. You don't just go sit and work out in the afternoons or whatever. Yeah. It's it's really like no, mentally defeating, horrible. 18 yeah. months. And then you got to make hooch. <laughs> It's bad. Speaking of hooch, um, did you hear that North Korea and South Korea are talking again? And North Korea says, according to the New York Times, they may be willing to uh, talk about giving up nuclear weapons. Right. Mm. What? Trump said this morning uh, he sees possible progress in North Korea talks, but maybe false hope seeing serious efforts being made by all sides. Yeah. So he just sort of summed up what you said. Uh, Obviously, he's watching CNN. Well, no. Because that's where I got my info. Really? So he had exactly the same info. So New York Times and CNN. Thank you, President Trump. (laughs) That's effective executive time right there. That's right there. I mean, totally. I mean, he could get it from his morning briefing or... Fox and Friends? No, no, the, the real morning briefing oh, where they, right. they, they read act, the security They come briefing. in and there's a dramatic acting out of the and daily a, intelligence briefing. Yeah, there's briefing. usually yes. like a four-star general and an admiral in the room. and Someone yells, hark. Yeah. And they point in the sky dramatically. Yes. So anyway, that's uh, that's all going on. That's actually really good news. Um, and, you know, a lot of this goes back to the Olympics. The mere fact that South Korea extended the olive branch. Uh, obtained a ship that they could put the North Koreans on to protect to them. To isolate them from isolate them, democracy. Allowed room for their cheerleaders and bada boom, bada bing. The next thing you know, we're talking about possible nuclear disarmament. Mm. What? Fantastic. Now, it's obviously a very long road. Mm. Yes. And uh, the White House isn't involved in it yet. Apparently, no. It's all Maybe that's covered. for the best. Well, do you think they should stay out? There seems to be a lot of progress once they stop trying to. But maybe, maybe people. what's happening is he talks really strong, but then behind the scenes, maybe they're massaging this. The president, nice, you mean? Qu- well, not the president, but the president's people. Okay. The administration yeah. speaks strongly behind the scenes. Maybe they're discussing things. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Carry a big stick, and then behind the scene in the front, but then behind the scenes, they're handing out, you know. Kimchi. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Never had the stuff, but. Uh, Case in point, have you heard anything from Secretary of State Tillerson in the last few weeks? No. He seems to be off the radar. Yeah. Maybe he's having these backroom discussions trying to figure this out. Or maybe he's huddled down in his office just waiting for all this chaos to blow over until they have to do something, you know, foreign policy-wise. But, yeah. Whatever it is, Kim Jong-un... He's 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 being different than he normally is. Yeah. This is great news. Great news. It's good. So um, let's get to uh, other great news. I'm sure there's other news out there. Terry, what other things should we be paying attention to? Uh, so you got White House economic advisor Gary Cohn and three uh, and then other free trade advocates inside the White House and the Treasury Department are mounting a last ditch effort to blunt the impact of Trump's head turning decision 
West Wing, West Wing aides led by Cohn, who directs the National Economic Council, are planning a White House meeting for Thursday with executives from industries to be hurt by big tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. Two officials familiar with the matter are saying the meeting is tentative and the participants have not yet been set in stone, but industries that could be hit hard by tariffs, including automakers and beverage companies. Uh. They use aluminum for their cans. Oh, yeah. And they and many of the and some of them have some of the bigger ones have come out and talked about that they use U.S. aluminum to make the beverage cans until there's no more aluminum left to, to, to right. buy, and then they buy foreign because foreign, foreign aluminum. They have a business; they have to keep running. Uh, President Trump's proposed tariffs on imported steel and aluminum will increase U.S. employment in those sectors by uh, what thirty three thousand jobs, according to estimates, but cost one thousand one hundred seventy nine thousand jobs in other areas of the economy. So, within aluminum and steel. Jobs will go up because there'll be more demand yeah. for U.S. product. But outside of you of steel and aluminum, there'll be more jobs lost because of the cost of using those. Uh, yeah, those, cost, uh, plus materials. cost will go up. Now your soda will start costing you ten dollars a can. Yeah. So according, well, not ten dollars, but it'll go up some. According to a new report by the Trade Partnership, a consulting firm, uh, they say their numbers aren't accounting for any potential retaliation from other countries, which is in the works. Yeah, as they're raising. Uh, ter- they'll ap- apply tariffs to goods that we are exporting from our country. Now, no matter what goes on here, this is different than when President Obama was in because we're actually now talking about tariffs. Right. So Trump does it in a very uh, interesting way, like irritating half of the globe. Hmm. But we're talking about tariffs, something we didn't really do with President Obama. Sure, we've offended some people, and Harley Davidson's upset, and Coca-Cola. But at least people are talking about tariffs and free trade and right. how, who gets what in the trade deal. Well, there's a bright side to everything. Good yeah. job, Matt. Thank you. I'm going to put a rosy aspect on Thank you. reflex diplomacy and tariffs. Uh, it, it's become an easy <laughs> way of telegraphing your commitment to serve, but now a group of House Democrats are asking an ethics committee to investigate the legality and propriety of members of Congress sleeping in their Capitol complex offices suggesting the habit may be more about saving rent money than anything else. Well, what else would it be? I'm not sure why. Yeah. So Politico reports that more than two dozen members of the Congressional Black Caucus signed a letter questioning the practice uh, on on which uh, Speaker Paul Ryan is a leading advocate. He likes to uh, work late. And then he works out in the yeah. in the gym in yeah. the Capitol. And then he goes and sleeps in his office because he likes to get up early and get get right to work. Maybe that's what Google should do. They could just charge their employees to sleep at work. They do. To get more work done. I believe they have dorms. It's the sleep tax. Mm. So but so why does the Congressional Black Caucus care? It says members, uh, so they're saying the, the office sleepovers, un, uh, sleepovers unfairly gave members of, uh, an opportunity to live rent-free using all the facilities. Why does in that matter? The office building. I mean, I get it. it. They probably shouldn't be sleeping at work, but if you're only in town a few weeks, yeah, a month, and it's very expensive to have. It's way expensive to have anything else, and you really property. do want to get stuff done, and you're going to work a lot. It seems like that's fine. And they've been doing it for a while. I just found it odd that all of a sudden now they. The, the, the thing that's weird too is that it almost sounds like oh, so let's pay them more. Let's pay them more so well, they can have a house. Is that the next step? We don't yeah. need them to have a house there. Let's. I, I don't mind that Chaffetz lived on a cot. 
I'm yeah. fine with that, actually. <laughs> I saw that cot, by the way. I'm sorry. I walked in and went, this is weird. I'm like in his bedroom. Can I? Can we just go so, to the Capitol building already? So this is where he sleeps? Yeah, they, they <laughs> brought... They, and that was, well, that was the other thing. It was part of the tour. Yeah. When you, I, me and my wife... Went to Representative Jason Chaffetz, his yeah. office Because he made famous the fact that he'd sleep on a cot. And his office, as many as all offices in Congress, you, you can, you can yeah. send them an email, whatever, and they'll set up a tour if right. available, and we did. And one of their staff took us on a tour around the Capitol, but he started first by taking us into the representative's office and showing us the cot that he sleeps so, on. So uh, do you guys want to see the cot or not? And then I looked up at him and I go, we're not in his voting district. And he went, <laughs> oh, come on, let's go then. He was trying to he's trying to win a vote, you know, and I'm like, we're not in his district. You know, my wife just yeah. works through your office and knows yeah. some people and can we go? We we don't care where he sleeps. Then Terry got the boot. I'm not here to vote. Booted for him. him out. I, I'd like to see the Capitol building. You, Thank had, you. you had a great shot. It was great. Uh, Americans rank cyber terrorism in North Korea's uh weapons systems developing their program as two most critical threats. To the United States in a new Gallup poll released Monday. The two are, are in a statistical tie. Just 3% of Americans consider each unimportant. Wow. When it comes to cyber terrorism and the uh, nuclear weapons there. The two are in, uh, they're, they're in the, intriguingly though, international terrorism of the offline variety takes a close third place. Other security issues Gallup listed rank much lower in response concern. Only 39% of Americans said large numbers of immigrants entering the United States is a critical threat. So that's 39%. Yeah. Uh, moreover, 29% said it's not a threat at all. With the exception of cyber terrorism, Gallup found Republicans across the board are more likely than Democrats to deem a threat critical. Oh, really? Democrats more than Republicans? Republicans are, are across the board more likely oh, than more Democrats likely. Okay. to see a threat as being critical. It's interesting. Interesting, except uh, guns, gun threats. Well, I, yeah, I bet you the Democrats think it's critical with guns. <laughs> now the Democrats are like, that's critical. It's interesting. Isn't that wild how we think? We, you know, some of us are much more worried about terrorist threats mm. and others are much more worried about gun threats. So the top three, cyber terrorism, North Korea, and just general terrorism. Do you remember? You probably don't remember this. Mm. Back when terrorism wasn't it was something, a big threat to us, it was something Chuck Norris didn't yeah. stopped in movies. Yeah, that's right. It was something yeah. that always happened in the Middle East, right? Some place in right. Beirut, right? Yeah, and we yeah. were worried more about like gas shortages. Mm. Ah, those were good days. <laughs> uh, finally, Philando Castile, the Minnesota motorist killed by police during a 2016 traffic stop, was a much-loved meal supervisor at a St. Paul school in Minnesota. Huh. He was known to pay for lunches for children who couldn't afford them, and now a crowdfunded charity campaign is carrying on that work. The Philando Feeds the Children campaign recently paid off all um, of the what $102,000 of school lunch debt for f- the 56 schools in the St. Paul public school system. This out of USA Today. A Metropolitan State University professor came up with the idea to crowdfund, uh, what, $5,000 to pay off the lunch debt at the school where Castile worked. Huh. But the effort ended up raising, as of the writing of this article, more than $155,000. Now, no parent of the 37,000 kids who eat meals at schools need to worry about how to pay for that overdue debt. Oh, how cool is that? I did not know that about him because you hear about him and that story – um, he he had a concealed weapon on him. Yeah. He told the police, and a cop backed up, and it was, I mean, his girlfriend in the driver's seat, Philando was in the passenger seat, recorded it all. Yeah. Or at least maybe it was after it happened where she's going, you just did not shoot him. And the police officer backed up 
and was obviously when you listen to the video, he seemed very agitated. But of course, it was yeah. after the shooting, and so there's some confusion as to what happened. But it came out that this guy told the police he had a gun, and they shot him, and yeah. he dies. But when you find out in the background, he's worked school lunch for the school, and he did all this stuff to help kids in the school, and so now the charity uh, is now paying for the entire school district. No one yeah. has to pay for lunch. Wow. It's amazing what a story can do today. Again, fundraising, crowdfunding, all that crazy stuff. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who have changed the world. Really interesting insight. If you ever feel like you're just a little quirky, you're going to want to stick with us. If you take a stroll down history lane, you'll see many famous names etched in the fine woodwork of human achievement like Einstein, Tesla, Steve Jobs. And if you look at our greatest inventors and innovators, you can find a common thread in simple language. We would call them strange or even weird in some regard. Uh, In her book, though, quirky was the word she chose to use. Joining us to talk about her book is Melissa Schilling. Melissa is the Schilling is the Hertzberg Family Professor of Management at New York University Stern School of Business. And her uh, name of the book is Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This I really love this idea that um, you somehow have landed on, I think, a treasure trove for a lot of us of um, these these seemingly quirky individuals. But really, um, when you when you started researching them, it seems like they really had a lot more in common than just quirkiness. Yeah, they were a lot more in common than I expected. And there were so many surprising commonalities that at first – you know, I couldn't see how they could possibly be related to innovation. But then when you studied them deeper across more people and tried to integrate that with the science of creativity, you know, you start to understand how these characteristics actually facilitated their ability to be breakthrough innovators. Talk about who were the people you studied? Because when you started out, you weren't, you you just started with certain um, innovators that I guess is what you were looking for, right? Yeah, I set up criteria to choose the people uh, because I didn't want to bias the process myself by picking people that I knew had particular traits. So I decided that I was only going to look at people that showed up at the top of multiple breakthrough innovator or inventors lists so that somebody else had decided that these were important innovators. I only looked at people who were known for multiple breakthrough innovations so that they'd be serial breakthrough innovations, uh, breakthrough innovators. I thought that was important to separate person from context, because sometimes someone's just at the right place at the right time. Right. Uh, but when someone has created breakthrough innovations their whole life, you can be a little bit more sure that it has something to do with them or their, you know, the experiences they've had. And then I also picked people about whom multiple biographies had been written and from whom we could get uh, plenty of firsthand information, like quotes from the innovators themselves or from their friends and family, so that you can read what they thought and believed in their own words. I love it. And so some of the names that came up, um, Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon uh, Musk, Steve Jobs, uh, Marie Curie, Dean Kamen, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and Nikola Tesla. 
Unbelievable. And um, talk to us about what you learned. What 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 did you notice that they that these quirky people started having in common? So, you know, one of the things that really stood out that I think is something we can take advantage of for ourselves is uh, this all but one of them, and the outlier on this particular characteristic was Thomas Edison, but the other seven were all keenly idealistic, meaning that they were pursuing some goal they saw as bigger than themselves, and that goal uh, they thought was intrinsically noble and intrinsically important, and it was more important than money, it was more important than their leisure or their reputation, sometimes even more important than their family or their health, and it kept them incredibly motivated, and it helped them to be big thinkers, and the most interesting part, which I had never really thought about before, and there's not a lot of research on this, so it was exciting to discover this, is that that idealism provided a form of ego defense that made it so that they were resilient to criticism and to failure. You know, so things would happen where they would face obstacles or or where they were sometimes viciously criticized. You know, Einstein was was, uh, uh, attacked a lot for being Jewish, and Marie Curie was attacked a lot for being a woman. Both Elon Musk and Steve Jobs were often told that their ideas were wrong. Mm. Uh, But the fact that they believed they were doing something important for humanity or for some larger cause meant that they just uh, took that criticism as something to be endured. They didn't let it deter them in any way. And I I found that incredibly inspiring because that's something we can all take advantage of. We can all cultivate some sort of grand ambition that we are going to work towards in our lives. So do you think it was their idealism that made them, you know, air quotes, weird? Um, Or do you think it was their weirdness that made them... um, so successful. So I, I think uh, or both. the weirdness is more evident in another trait that almost all of them had in common. And in this particular trait, uh, Benjamin Franklin's the outlier, so he didn't have it, but all the other seven did, which is they all had this sense of separateness. And by separateness, I meant that they were a little bit socially disconnected or they felt a little detached from the social world around them. And as a result, they often didn't feel like the world's rules, like the rules that the rest of us are following, applied to them. And that really facilitated them coming up with really unusual ideas and pursuing them also. And the, this, again, helped with pursuing ideas in the face of criticism. So, I mean, if you think of someone like Steve Jobs... He didn't think he needed to put a license plate on his car, or a lot of the times he didn't wear shoes, or he didn't shower, and sometimes he stared at people without blinking. Like, he had these weird traits. And then Dean Kamen, you know, this is how this research project started, is that I noticed that Steve Jobs, when I started studying Steve Jobs, had some weird traits that were remarkably similar to Dean Kamen. But it all, all their weird traits stemmed from this idea that they were rejecting the the social norms that hold the rest of us in alignment, right? They decided that those rules didn't apply to them. And so this also enabled them to pursue things that other people said were impossible, right? They thought, yeah. well, maybe, maybe you believe it's impossible, but I don't believe it's impossible. Those rules don't apply to me. Well, yeah, I mean, Elon Musk starts a car company and a battery company and and SpaceX and Tesla Motors. And you think, well, does he not know that there's Ford? <laughs> Does he not know that he can't do this? Um, it, so one of the things that I, I could see a lot of people thinking is it's almost like their behavior was antisocial. And so then I could almost hear them being diagnosed with something like Asperger's or, you know, brilliant people with horrible social skills. Were they were they horribly social or were they just intentionally trying to be independent? I think that the... 
the aspects of them that we find to be um, unconventional, I wouldn't say they were antisocial exactly, although in some ways Marie Curie might have described herself as antisocial. She actually described, she and Pierre Curie referred to their lives as anti-natural. They said they had an anti-natural existence where they just wanted to be with each other in a shack away from the social world. But, but Really, I think that uh, I don't think they went out of their way to be antisocial, but they were unconventional people. And because they were unconventional people and they were pursuing their goals without letting, you know, social norms hold them back, they were perceived as as pretty weird. And some of them did have signs that, you know, might have made you wonder if they were a little bit on the spectrum. So, for instance, uh, both Einstein and Elon Musk were so introspective as children that their families thought they might be deaf. Ah, Elon Musk was actually tested for deafness by his family. Now imagine how incredibly introspective you have to be for your own family Uh to think that you're deaf when you're not really deaf. That's, you know, he clearly was uh, a little bit unusual in in the way that he interacted with people as a kid. And then Thomas Edison, of course, was deaf and became progressively more deaf through his life. And, And deafness has a tendency to make you feel separate. Right, so Thomas Edison just felt uncomfortable in social situations because he couldn't hear what was going on. Uh, but in the end, he end, he learned to cherish that separateness. He found it gave him time to think. And Einstein also talked at length about how being detached or being separate made him a much more independent thinker. And he ended up arguing that that most people should strive for this level of independence. Hmm. Now, in fact, there's stories of Albert Einstein standing out in the rain. And I can't remember if his wife or his mother or somebody would come out and like have to remind him, Albert, come in out of the rain because he's so deep in thought. Um, That's quirky. There's that's where the quirky comes from. What else did you find? What else stood out for you just in your learning of these people? And how does it all apply as I'm raising a child that might be a little quirky or any of us are? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that really stood out is that, uh, you know, we need to learn to not only tolerate weirdness, but embrace it. Because the more we can enable people who we think of as quote-unquote weird to gain access to social support and the resources they need, the more we're going to have the best of both worlds. We'll have quirky people who are still empowered and enabled by, you know, networks around them that help them execute their ideas. You know, another one of the characteristics that I found in every single one of the innovators, which is hugely valuable whether you want to be an innovator or whether you just want to be successful at just about anything, is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is a form of task-related confidence where you have faith in your ability to overcome obstacles and achieve your goals. Uh, And it's people who have really high self-efficacy, like the innovators in my set all had extremely high self-efficacy. They will persist with things longer because they absolutely believe that they will accomplish them. And some people would think of these innovators as being risk-tolerant, but I don't think that's actually the case at all. I think that when you have very high self-efficacy, the calculus of risk is just completely different because if you absolutely believe that you will succeed if you stick with it, then you don't believe there's that much risk. That's so true. And so having high self-efficacy makes people bolder, and it also makes people 
happier and gives them a sense of well-being. Yeah. And we can cultivate self-efficacy in children. And, and one, of the, one of the best ways, there's, there's two ways that you can do it. Um, one of the most powerful ways is early wins. So giving people a chance to overcome obstacles and achieve their goals, which really means don't rescue people too early. Uh, you know, a lot of times if you see your kids struggling at something, you want to jump in and say, here, let me help you, because you know that that's great for bonding between you and, and you, you feel good about your nurturing of your child. But, but in reality, if, if you think your kid can overcome the obstacles themselves, it could be a lot better for them to stand back and say, hey, you got this. I have faith in you. You're going to figure this one out and let them do it themselves. Because when they overcome those obstacles and achieve it, they learn something about themselves that they'll have with them forever. I love that. What's the other point? Thank you. And then the second way we can increase self-efficacy is is actually even easier. It's just less powerful. And that is hero stories. And, and the reason this works is that humans are wired for vicarious learning, meaning that as social creatures, we don't learn what we can eat or not eat or what we can jump over or not jump over by doing it and failing and, and, and possibly dying. We learn much of what we can do by looking at what others have done or can do. So we learn what, we can, what we're capable of by seeing what others are capable of. And that means that reading hero stories, reading stories about people that we can identify with who've accomplished things and who've overcome difficult obstacles and stuck with it and achieved their goals, that teaches us something about what we can do too. So that's, this, is, this is why hero stories can be so in- inspiring and so motivating. Is, I mean, that's, it seems like the neat thing about a hero story is the heroes come in so many shapes and sizes that you can probably find one that uniquely fits your child. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the point is, you know, obviously you, it, it's, it's not as effective to use a hero story about a superhero because right. most of us, you know, won't associate ourselves with a superhero. But when you can find hero stories that our kids can identify with, that will teach them so much, not only about what they're capable of, but what we're hoping for from them, you know? Do you think... Um, I mean, I, I, if we've looked at these people as quirky or strange, and then instead of like, like you're saying, instead of creating systems and structures where we welcome them into the system, it, we probably used to keep them out of the system. In fact, many yeah. of them we called witches, and we probably burned them at the stake. But, um, right. but I, I wonder how many amazing. Uh, you know, influential thoughts have been have been eliminated simply because we didn't draw a big enough circle. I know so many. I mean, think about when uh, Steve Jobs went to apply for a job at Atari. He walks in, his feet are dirty, he's wearing sandals, his hair is unwashed, and he basically tells the receptionist, "I'm not leaving to give me a job." And she calls back to L.A. Corn and she says, "We've got this hippie kid in the lobby who says he's not leaving unless we give him a job." You know, most companies of the time then, and probably still today, would have had security throw them out. Yeah, right. right? They would not have given him a job, but Al Acorn did give him a job. And then it, it didn't stop there because Steve was difficult to work with. He was abrasive and obnoxious and argumentative, and people were complaining about him. And they were also complaining about his smell because he didn't shower. And again, most companies would issue a warning and then get rid of them. But instead, Al Acorn created a night shift, and Steve was the only one <laughs> on it. Now, how many people yeah. got excluded from the opportunity to, to fulfill their innovative potential because they didn't come into contact with someone like Al Acorn? You know, in studying Marie Curie's case also, you know, in the beginning I was really distressed that more women didn't make it into my yeah. set. And I had followed this, this uh, 
what I what I thought was a pretty rigorous procedure of selecting people to try to keep my own uh, biases out of the process. But in the end, I didn't have very many women, and I was worried about it. And then after I studied Marie Curie, I was amazed that there were any women in the set because what Marie Curie had to go through to be a woman of science was was staggering you know women were not welcome in science and most universities didn't admit women during her time she had to travel from uh russian occupied poland at the time to france on very little money and put herself through school at the sorbonne to get higher education and then frequently throughout her career was discriminated against you know they didn't want to give her a nobel prize they wouldn't let her present her work at the academy of sciences uh, she was vilified later in her life when she had an affair with Paul Langvin, even though Paul Langvin re- wasn't criticized at all because he was a man. Mm. So, you know, the things she had to to bear, to stick through, uh, to become the success that she became, which was which is an amazing success, were pretty huge. And it's a testimony to her grit and her her fierce determination. But so many people wouldn't have made it through. You know, and hopefully we can change that, right? Hopefully we can make it easier for people to fulfill that innovative potential. Oh wow, it's um, it's interesting how so much of this really leads to creativity, where we we almost think that the creative ones would be the clicky ones that are all alike, but really it seems like these these outliers, the people that are the outlier, have so much more going for them in creativity. Yeah, you know, I have to say it was kind of funny for me because um, in a big part of my career, I studied social networks and uh, network connectivity between people and between firms and how that influences innovation. And when I first started this research project, I was trying to look at uh, the various social networks around them and to understand how those networks help them become the innovators that they were. But in the end, I had to abandon that because most of them had almost no social network at all. Uh, They really were very disconnected people. Now, I think that there's a way to, I I think that there is a way to let people be creative and original and unusual and yet still have access to some of the advantages of networks. But it it means that we have to, um, we have to get rid of things like norms of consensus. We have to be more comfortable with people disagreeing about ideas. Yeah, but boy. That's just so dangerous. <laughs> we we really worry about it. I guess our I don't know if it's our nature or just our social construct. We don't like those outliers. I, yeah, I know it's true. And also, I think that there's uh, there's something to be learned about disagreeing without it being hostile or mm. or threatening. You know, if you look at Pixar, the way they do dailies each day. Everybody contributes, you know, what they want to – they present their work and then everybody, anyone in the organization from any level can say, oh, I think you should try doing it this way. I think you should change this. I think you should change that. And it isn't hostile and it isn't perceived as as really criticizing or as negative. It's perceived as positive. And uh, I think, you know, maybe we have a lot to learn about how to incorporate that kind of – you know, I'd, I wouldn't even call it conflict exactly. I'd, I'd call it maybe constructive adjustment or something. Yeah, yeah, and feedback. Yeah. What, uh, Melissa, what would you say is the one thing um, that each of us could do today to make sure that we, we draw a bigger circle for the for the 
the people that think differently than us, but also so that we, if we are a little quirky, if we are a little strange, that we can we can basically have a bigger impact and and maybe fit or, or, or impact more people by our differences. Yeah. So I think, first of all, the one thing I mentioned before is that idea of cultivating an ambitious goal. I think that's really valuable, like thinking about what is it in the world you would really like to make better? Is there something out there that that you really care about? And then make up your mind. This is part of self-efficacy. Make up your mind that you can do something about it. Lay out the path. Think about the steps that would have to happen and tell yourself, you know what? I can do this. I can totally do this. I can make a difference on this thing that I believe in. And the second thing that, you know, I really learned from this study that I think is super valuable, not only, you know, for yourself and also for parenting, is the value of books and letting people, encouraging people to study on their own. Like most of these innovators in this set struggled with the structure of school because it just didn't, uh, occur in the pace or the rhythm that they wanted or needed, or maybe it wasn't the topics they thought were important. And yet they all invested heavily in self-education. They were voracious readers. They picked a topic and they studied it deeply on their own terms, and it made a huge difference. So you, you think of someone like Elon Musk. He didn't actually study rocket science in school. He figured out that he wanted to establish a colony on Mars, and so he taught himself rocket science. Hmm. And you know, that's a that's a pretty inspiring story. The idea that someone can teach themselves rocket science and actually design a prototype of a reusable rocket and do something that the entire space industry said was impossible. And we should all feel like that's possible for us, that we can study something and really make a difference. Uh, you know, read. Read like crazy. Read the things that you really believe in and value and read about the problems you want to solve in addition to whatever you're doing at school. I love it. I love it. And and think outside of the think outside of the mark as well. Boy, Melissa Schilling, thank you so much for your great uh, work, your research. The name of the book, Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. So much to learn, so much to uh, to take in from that. Uh, we'll continue the journey, a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. You know, if, uh, if you haven't lived and felt a little quirky yourself, um, then maybe you just haven't lived quite enough. There are some very, I don't know, we all in this world are so quick, it seems like, to try to find a reason why people, you know, aren't safe, why they aren't good for us. And I remember teaching singles classes uh, in relationship skills, and I remember um, over and over, the the singles i mean these were people many of them had already been married they had kind of been burnt by other relationships they were angry and hurt and fearful about future relationships but i i would notice that so many times they every time i taught them something they would want to use that as a way to then exclude the 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 next partner and one of the f- points that we ended up talking a lot about in the class is our goal, kind of in marketing 101, if you're trying to find a date, if you're trying to you know, connect to other people, your goal would be to draw a bigger circle so you can get more people into the, this, this group 
of potential candidates to be your partner. But it seems like many of us draw a lot uh, smaller circles, and those the smaller the circle is, the harder it is as a target for people to hit. Like, uh, do they do this? Have they ever done this? Are they this? Are they this? Are they this? Are they this? And so in in research, we call that exclusion criteria, where generally you don't want to have so much exclusion criteria that you can't find anybody for your study. You want to to keep it as as inclusive as possible. So how are you when it comes to your own social life, your own dating life, your own friend circle? Do you have really strong exclusion criteria? Who do you allow into your circle? Do they have to be of your faith? Well, yeah, if you're going to date them, I mean, right, you only want to marry people of your faith. What about uh, your neighbors? I, I'm, I've talked to a, a group of people recently that um, they they don't know anybody that's diverse from them. They just don't have any because none of them live in their neighborhood and they don't participate in activities that are more diverse. And so are, is there a way that each of us in our lives could start to look at our own um, situation and how we exclude or include people? And maybe there's a way we could start to adjust, as Melissa was talking about, the the criteria a little bit to know that just because somebody's a little quirkier, because they they act a certain way, you know, they, there's still incredible things that these people have to offer. The idea that Steve Jobs almost didn't have a job because he hadn't showered— well, everybody should shower. Hey, you know what? Great point. Uh, thanks. And Steve Jobs can also be focused on other things. Well, you know, if Steve really wanted to be effective, he should learn to to do the social skills as well. Okay, sure. But again, we keep trying to make everyone change for us. What would happen if we could actually just start to see the goodness and the greatness in people? What would happen if you, I mean, I was a child of divorced parents and my in-laws could have naturally, this was back in the 70s and 80s, my in-laws could have naturally thought, oh, well, yeah, we don't want our daughter to date somebody whose parents were divorced, right? Which was a bigger deal back then. Um, But I'm glad they did. They gave me a lifeline. They gave me a chance to show that I could do something. And if I hadn't had the chance... I wouldn't have married my wife. If I hadn't married my wife, I wouldn't have had my kids. And it starts to create a pretty powerful story. So start looking at the criteria that you use in how you judge other people. And in fact, maybe what we ought to do is slow down as much as we can the judging process and actually increase the appreciation process. And what if we could also just start to see people as different, not good or bad? Don't make the judgment final. Don't make the judgment good or bad, or even positive or negative, what if we could just make it different? They just approach it differently. Some are more, you know, social. Some are more independent. Some are more interdependent. Some are more dependent in how we all approach life. I'm telling you, if we could get a little bit bigger circle, then we could actually go try to help the people that really need the help instead of ostracizing them and putting them outside of our circle and never dealing with them again. There are people that need, I think everybody needs other people around them in order to protect all of us to to get the best and most out of each of our lives. Uh, think of, we, we probably would have pushed, you know, an Einstein out of the circle. We probably would have pushed uh, even an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs out of the circle 
because they were just quirky. They were different. Let's not be that kind of person. So only look at yourself, right? We don't have to always look at it as, at, at a cultural level. How are you doing in drawing a bigger circle to let more people in? We'll continue the journey, folks. Uh, this is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends. The the host of Empty News, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. This one's a little different. I'm excited about this. I couldn't figure out the term or the game where you you take you're, you're zoomed in super close on a picture, yeah, and then it's not until you zoom way out that you get the perspective, like the yeah. bird's eye view of it. You know, cool. Um, so we're gonna do kind of an audio version of that. All right. Okay, but first, let me give you the story. So a persistent noise of unknown origin, sometimes compared to a truck idling or distant thunder, has bedeviled a Canadian city for years, damaging people's health and quality of life. Numerous residents have said this. Those who hear it have compared it to a fleet of diesel engines idling next to your home or the pulsation of a subwoofer at a concert. Others report it rattling their windows and spooking their pets. Known as the Windsor Hum, this sound in Windsor, Ontario, near Detroit, is unpredictable in its duration, timing, and intensity, making it all the more maddening for those affected. Hmm. Um so that they've done studies. No answers have been found. Skeptics and theorists believe that the hum is related to secret tunneling, UFOs, covert government operations. <laughs> so I have a snippet of it. Okay. And I want you to tell me if you know what it is. You ready? I'll try yes. to play it so it doesn't hurt your ears. Okay. That's it, huh? Any idea? Um, somebody's motorboating. Okay. Their breakfast cereal, the milk in their breakfast cereal bowl. Okay. Let me, uh, I'll raise the pitch a little bit, see if it helps out a okay. little bit. That's now a tenor. Okay. Motorboating his breakfast milk. All right. A little higher. Uh, that sounds like a child who skinned his knee. Okay. And is bouncing. So I've I've raised it to the correct frequency and, and pitch. Okay. And uh, I think I figured out the answer. <gasps> what? The Ontario or the Windsor hum. What's here? What is it? Huh? <laughs> it was Slim Whitman the whole time. When I'm calling you. That's it. That's the Windsor hum. And, and apparently he was stuck. Was it just stuck? I and, guess so. Yeah, somebody needed to move the needle. Right. Slim Whitman. Slim Whitman. We'll leave you with a little Slim Whitman. Even though the people in uh, Windsor, Michigan, I think it is, don't like it as much. This is the Matt Townsend Show. That means I offer my love to you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt along with Jeff and Terry. 
The gang's all here. I just get all warm and fuzzy when you refer to me as friend. I assume you were talking to me. Okay. That's a good assumption. I was totally talking to you and to the listeners, the Teds of millions of listeners. Out Tens there of in, millions. Yeah, out there in listener land. We got a lot to cover today. We'll be talking about the, a positive approach to social media with your kids, sometimes we, when we, you know, when we want to try to control their social media, a lot of times we we make it sound like, you know, they've got the plague, or air quote the cancer. <laughs> like you, you're going to be on that. You're going to use that social media device. You're going to use that their uh, Snapchat. Can you still get the plague? Yeah, I know you can, can get the plaque. You can get the plague. Hmm. It's not worth getting. I thought it was only in those card games or Oregon Trail. Yeah. No. I don't think they do the Oregon Trail game anymore, do they? they there's an Oregon Trail card game. Oh, is there? You should check it out. It's quite fun. Yeah, that's okay. I've got Netflix. Thanks, though. <laughs> um, great news coming out of the White House. Uh, for many that think that there's chaos going on in the White House, President Trump clarified it today. No chaos here. Only great energy. Which is which is great to know. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Hey, Sean Spicer's back. But uh, it's it's not chaos. It's it's great energy. And a lot of interesting things might be coming from it. North Korea talking to South Korea, saying they may be willing to at least discuss losing, uh, you know, the nuclear weapons. And 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 that's a huge advance. Um, Plus, now President Trump's working, uh, you know, vigorously on um, trying to stop the trade imbalance with China. Now, that's upsetting some people, which is why many are saying that's chaotic. But he's not saying no chaos, just energy toward these issues. That's pretty exciting. That's going on. Um, so we'll be getting to that. We'll be getting to social media. We've got our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation this hour to find out what's coming up uh, on their show. They're in Las Vegas, and they'll be celebrating BYU's victory over um, St. Mary's last night, which probably ended, I don't know, midnight. I was asleep. It wasn't even close, really. I mean, they yeah. they scored 13 points more than St. Mary's. That's a good, that's a good game. That is. And... What was great about it is I didn't have to stress at all because I went to bed. I I didn't remember it until I turned on my computer this morning. Really? Yeah. Well, you missed a good one. We both did. I got the highlights. That's what's great. We'll be talking about that. But uh, before we get to all that fun, of course, also a hero of the day. We'll, we always like to cover the heroes because, you know, just a good positive example. And if anyone can find my... Uh, BYU card, I'd appreciate you returning it. Somehow it flew off my person. I thought I saw some strange man just entering the building. Yeah, that's not, hope not. I think he's got your card. I've got my people at my office searching for it. He was in there playing foosball in the break room. Oh, boy. By he himself? Was, he was eating all of the frozen dinners that said Matt Townsend on them. Oh, boy. And I think he had his, he just had his mouth under... The Diet Coke dispenser. Oh, yes. And he was just going for it. No, that was actually me. Oh, that was you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that was, I must have looked different to you. Um, Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? 
So Paul Ryan has joined the uh, chorus of Republicans who are skeptical about President Trump's plan for steep tariffs. The House Speaker, whose home state of Wisconsin could be hit hard by proposed retaliatory measures, released a statement Monday saying he's extremely worried about the consequences of Trump's planned policy, which would levy a 25% tax on steel and a 10% tax on aluminum imports, saying Trump's proposal could spark a trade war. Ryan's spokesperson said Ryan is urging the White House to not advance with this plan. Do not advance with the plan. So what's interesting now is that other countries are saying, okay, if you're going to do that, then we'll, you know, pull out some tariffs tariffs of our own on your products. Wow, here we'll we go. We'll just start retaliating. Here we the go. The European Union intends to target 2.8 billion or 3.5, 2.8 billion euros, so 3.5 billion dollars of U.S. good, ranging from t-shirts and whiskey to motorcycles, should the president go forward with his plan to uh, propose these tariffs. They're targeting certain products. Motorcycles, specifically Harley-Davidson, who are, the home office is Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the home state of Paul Ryan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whiskey, Kentucky whiskey, the home state of Mitch McConnell. So you have the leader of the House and the leader of the Senate. They have the two key ears of the president, so the the EU is like, we'll go after this one and this one, and then those two guys will get mad and go talk to the White House. <laughs> you see their plan, right? It sounds like politics. Politics. So they're 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 building this this fight before it actually goes into place. Uh, Texas holds the first primary contest of the 2018 election today. Both parties watching for indications on how the battle to control Congress may play out in November. A lot of oh, Democratic boy. blue wave talk coming out of Texas, yeah. an extremely red state. What if what if uh, Texas, the red state, has a few blue marks, like little bruises all over it? Yeah. Because some people go Democrat. They might. Ted Cruz is said to be possibly vulnerable. Ooh, Ted. George P. Bush, the grandson of one of them, is running. Boy. There's another George Bush? Well, he's a piece. George P. Bush. He's like the fourth generation. Yeah. He was like a land grant person in the government or something down in Texas. Mm. So he's running. So we'll see what he's pro, very pro-Trump apparently. Boy, this this is going to be a crazy West Virginia year. teachers are still on strike. No deal has been reached. They've been out of school since the 22nd of February. Uh, 55 counties, 270,000 students and 35,000 employees all just kind of hanging out waiting for the Senate and in uh, West Virginia to figure that one out. We talked about North Korea, possibly seeing some daylight yeah, there, or maybe there's some uh, movement on uh, them doing something with their weapons. It, it seems like they're so far along in their weapons program, they just can't go, eh, come get it, we're done. They're sort of, you know, involved. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a point that it's no longer testing, they're just sitting there. Yeah, they've, they said at the moment they're not going to have any more tests as they talk with the South and see where things go. Maybe they can at least de-escalate, maybe draw some of the threat level down. Point them somewhere else. Yeah, just, you know, go point them at an island or something. Uh, Florida's Republican-controlled Senate has passed by a narrow 20 to 18 vote legislation that would ban people under the age of 21 from buying guns three weeks after the high school shooting that happened there. The bill will also require a three-day waiting period for most gun purchases and would ban the sale or possession of bump stock devices. The bill must now be 
approved by the state's house includes a $67 million voluntary voluntary opt-in school marshal program that would let school districts allow some staff members to carry concealed weapons on campus. Hmm. It's about time. It's going further than uh, what some people want, and it's not going far enough yeah. for other people. Yeah. So it might be the good measure at the moment. Maybe this is, yeah, that in-between measure. So it passed the Senate. They're waiting on the House. See what happens. All right. It's the beginning. They're, they're making progress. And plus, we know there's 20 other things they could work on, mental health issues, mm-hmm. fatherhood initiatives. They probably just don't want those kids to come back. Security, right. Hanging out of the Capitol all day, just yelling at you. Come on. It's not. That's not easy. Finally, authorities say a large brawl that spilled out of a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant in New Jersey left two people injured, including an employee who tried to break up the fight. The police arrived Sunday night to find a fight involving as many 20 people. Oh, boy. Uh, It's unclear what sparked the massive brawl at the family restaurant chain that provides entertainment to little kids and pizza and parents a chance to sit down and not pay attention to their kids. And maybe that's the problem. Who knows? A woman had a minor stab wound in the hip but declined medical treatment. The employee had a cut on on his left hand. Two women from Philadelphia taken into custody. Hold on. That that sounds like a normal night at Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) It's just a Sunday night at Chuck E. Cheese. So what was Chuck's role in this? He, well, he was at the center of it, wasn't he? Well, he was uh, he was at the center of the animatronics that stopped Ooh. mid-song, and then they you know just started vibrating in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. Then I, what it is, you know, what starts every Chuck E. Cheese fight is the fact that the pizza to beverage ratio it's hard to it's hard to do because they're always giving you like pitchers of root beer. And oh yeah, and so then some kids sugar up on all that root beer, and parents, of course. Yeah. Then you got a bunch of amped up, sugar loving, Chuck E. Cheese. I, I, I listened to an in depth study, yeah, an in depth interview about this study that a professor did, trying to figure out why does Chuck E. Cheese get connected to this violent behavior? It's supposed to be a place you go have fun. Why does yeah. it spill out into the parking lot? If you do a web search, there's all kinds of these uh, events. That are being reported. Now, they're being reported because it's Chuck E. Cheese yeah. and violence, right. right? What they found in their studies that these types of eateries, like a pizza place or a sports bar or any of these types of things, Chuck E. Cheese doesn't have any more of these events than any other place. In fact, they have less they just, events they, than most, yeah. but it's the fact that it's a family place right. and then 20 people in the parking lot fighting. That's really the the key that gets it into the media. Other restaurants have similar events. Yeah. They don't get reported on See, because it's just some place. It's like hmm. postal service. Mm-hmm. That's kind of known for going postal, but you can go postal anywhere. Yes. And there are people going postal in all businesses. But the post office, because it was that term of going postal, yeah, back in the day, became something that, that was connected and became a news story. So Chuck E. Cheese has this problem. Yeah. And so the company tried to figure out a way to fix it. And they, they went in and did all these studies looking at is it because maybe somebody gets on a machine, a kid gets on one of these video game machines and sits there for an hour. And there, and then somebody else's kid stands behind him and doesn't get to play. And then oh, a parent, yeah. you know, maybe there's a, a point of conflict they can try to alleviate. Yeah. And they couldn't find one event. I know what it is. Throughout all the different events that happened, the police calls yeah. and stuff, there just wasn't one thing that looked like that. This is what's causing the problem. It's so. Monday night, Chuck E. Cheese fight night. Ooh, they, yeah. I guess. You can't. You can't have fight night at Chuck E. Cheese. And there's some locations that have absolutely no problems. 
There's a few locations that had to shut down because of so many police calls. Ours well, is shut down. You know what a lot of it is? It's because you bring families together for a family well, like birthday party, and a lot of families don't do well together anyway. <laughs> well, they they also said there's a lot of situations where you bring the you're there for the kid, but then you have divorced parents. Oh yeah. And there's that stress, and then in-laws yeah. that have taken sides, and then it just turns into mm. a big problem. Well, and then somebody gets the bill. Right? Oh, yeah. And you're like, what? We paid yep. what for that pizza? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still thirsty. Can I share a bit of other crime news? No. Okay. <sighs> okay. Go All ahead. right. Yeah. So it's kind of – it's lingering Oscar news, really. Ooh. Did you hear that – Francis McDormand's Oscar was stolen. Yes. How do you... But there was almost... They updated the story as almost as quickly as it broke. So... They caught the guy who was apparently a ticket taker at the governor's ball uh, following the ceremony. It was an after party. Yes. But so she probably sat it, set the thing down and the Oscar and he's like, and there it is. Yeah, and the the reason he was caught is because he took pictures and started bragging about it on social media. He did a Facebook Live video. Yeah. Look what I have. Yeah. I've it's, got Best Supporting Actress 2018 or whatever it was, Yeah, right? so it's interesting because <laughs> I thought when I was watching the Oscar ceremony, I could have sworn when people were holding up their Oscars, it was just like a blank plate. It and is. sure enough... After the Oscars is when they get them engraved. engraved. You go to the governor's ball and then you hand it across the table. They engrave it and that's where you get it. Do they do that just so absolutely nobody knows who's going to win until it happens? Okay. Yeah. And then you don't get the trophy mix up in the back if something's wrong or, you know. That is so embarrassing. Like when you've got just best director Oscar instead of your Oscar for best makeup. Hmm. Very true. She already has another one. She could have afforded to lose that one. Well, right? Eh, it kind of belongs to her. Hmm. It, the thing is, does the guy not know that people watch social media? <laughs> like, what's he thinking? At what point do you really do you yeah. think you're going to get away with that? Your, your name's attached. They your see face, your face. Your likeness. He's like just mugging with it. They were like, I'm huh. not. I'm not sure that was worth the. I think twenty thousand dollars he's going to have to pay. Yeah. There's better ways. There's better ways. Another maybe criminal story. I'm. I'm. St- I, it is, but okay. So three daycare workers who were allegedly allegedly gave toddlers melatonin laced gummy bears to ensure smoother nap times are facing serious <laughs> criminal charges now. Hold it. So now we can't drug our kids. This was in <laughs> Illinois at a daycare center. They gave. For, I was like, there's melatonin. Melatonin gummy bears? Oh, I would love that. those. Look, they're like, they're, they're like sleeping to. pills, but gummy bears. Absolutely. So for the daycare worker, you know, without parental consent, yeah. I don't even know if with parental consent it's even safe. We ought not. By the way, a gummy and a melatonin, I mean, it just seems like that's not right. So they, they were charged with two counts of child endangerment, two counts of uh, battery for doing this. Yeah. So my question is, as a parent, yeah. in the best interests of, well, me, is it wrong to maybe say, hey, here's a gummy to the kid? Yes. That's wrong? Well, I, in le- I would consult with your physician. Okay. Because if your child has real sleeping problems and they're not sleeping, there's, there's probably another reason. This isn't something we just throw a, another Benadryl at. But just, that's what I mean. Just maybe get the kid to be quiet. Here, 
toss? Is that wrong? No, you know what you should do is you, for example. Do could, I need to shop for a physician on my side on this issue? Because no, maybe the first guy's not going to, no, you know, once you start sign shopping for a drug doctor. Okay. Or a gummy doctor in mm-hmm. your case. Why don't you just pull the pool noodle out? Okay. Maybe about eight o'clock at night. You mm-hmm. just really work the kid <laughs> over. Right. And you just, you just tire them out. Well, I'm kind of tired too. Yeah, well, I'd rather not like be maybe that active at that moment. Well, okay, so, so you've got to decide if you want to be a good father that goes to the high place or a bad father that goes to the low place. The low place being <laughs> sleeping pill-induced gummy bears. Yeah. Hmm. But um, maybe what you need to do is just wear your kid out a little bit more. Instead of thinking that we drug him, mm-hmm. maybe we just— I think drug him puts too negative a spin on the story. What would you call it when you put an external chemistry yeah. chemical into your child's body? Surreptitiously, uh, help him to sleep better. A sleeping aid. Yeah. No. Hey, son, come get your um, gummy aid. <laughs> I, Mama, can I have my gummy bear? I was just looking at the story. I like, want to go to bed. You know how many parents probably don't know that this exists, and would be like, "Wow, this is amazing." But you know, the rest of your life. I mean, and melatonin apparently is is very. It's very. Um, it's it's not a really heavy drug. It's a, just right. a natural chemical. Okay. But hmm. once you get somebody um, consistently using a medicine to in order to sleep, you may have created a habit that the rest of their life they can only go to sleep with their drug. Oh. What do you think is a safe uh, amount of melatonin? So, for instance, is it safe to take it once a week? Oh, no, I think – I know a lot of people that take it every night. And is that safe? Yeah. Because it's a natural chemical. But you just said you could get someone hooked on something well, and no, then they no, couldn't. Yeah, but it's, I don't know that you get addicted to melatonin. But psychologically, you don't want your kid addicted to thinking that in order to sleep, mm. he needs some well, aid. All he'll know is it's a gummy bear. <laughs> no, but there's going to be a point he'll be 19 like, Mom, I'm going away to school, but I need my, my 12-pack of gummies. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it would be better look, that you just teach your kid to sleep. But oh. that wouldn't look too out of place at a college. A college kid eating a bunch of gummy bears? Yeah, so, that well, would actually be laced with some other drug. Long term, maybe a bad, as you're, t- yeah. you're saying. But yeah. what about this, you know, like, no. in the moment? Why, why, why don't you instead just, just... like, right now I need you not to be awake. No, but, like, your no? doctor would probably say kids just... Kids will naturally go to sleep because right. they're tired. So why don't you just help them... Be more tired. Work them out. Get them running. Exhaust them. Okay. And then no, they'll, I just, they'll just go to bed. I just you. thought, uh, as a parent, you can kind yeah. of look at that and go, "Yes, daycare workers, wrong. Do not give kids yeah. this." But as a parent, you're like, "I don't know. Yeah. Get that kid to go to sleep. That would be a beneficial. You know, it, it improve my life." Yeah, and that's no? the point. It's okay. not really always about your life, Terry. Well, once you choose to have children, sometimes it's about their little lives. Mm. Okay. Sorry. I, I always take the approach of they live with me, not me with them. But yeah, this is why, hmm. honestly, I'd get your wife involved. Yeah, <laughs> she'd say no. She's very. Smart. I didn't even ask. Call I, I kind of knew that she'd yeah. say no. So. I mean, she's probably she wouldn't mind lacing your gummy bears. Yeah, she'd totally drug me up. But yeah, yeah, she likes the kids. Mm-hmm. Anything to get you to go to bed. Yeah, just go away. That's it. Put them out. Put them out. Uh, see, the problems we solve here for you on the show, they seem like no-brainers, but then sometimes they seem like, uh, you know, I had to convince Terry that we ought not be doing that. Up next, we're going to talk about a positive approach to social media use. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Kids these days are spending hours a week on the computer, tablets, and smartphones. And that can be a scary thing for some of us parents. But you know what? It doesn't have to be. Here to talk with us today about how to have a positive approach to the social media use of our children and and uh, how to you know confront it as a parent is Nancy Smith, who's an author and a mother. She's the author of the book Social Citizens, A Positive Approach to Social Media and Parenting in a Digital World. Nancy, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. This is not going away. Technology is here to stay, apparently. Social media is here to stay. But a lot of parents probably have too negative of a, of, a, of a view of social media, don't we? You know, I think it's natural when it's something that you're not familiar with. And, you know, when I went to university, we didn't have the Internet or computers. Right. So, And that's not that long ago. I'm not that old. <laughs> but what I, I know to be true is, you know, when it's something we're unsure of, there's naturally fear that accompanies that. Is... I guess that fear then comes out because we don't understand it necessarily. We don't know maybe uh, what it is. So that fear then comes out and then our kids start to see it as, you know, we're so against them. We're so anti-technology. But I I, I guess we don't want to be anti-technology either, do we? No, I think the reality, as you pointed out, is it's here to stay. And uh, last night, as an example, I was speaking to a group of teens who are about to be applying for their post-secondary education. And, you know, when they were being career counseled of like, what are you going to do? And I told them when I was sitting in your place 30 some years ago, the job I'm doing today didn't exist. So uh, technology can be a wonderful thing and it can open possibilities and new doors that, you know, many of us can't even fathom and it's happening at such a rapid rate. So I encourage parents and teens to look at a possibility, be open to it, because opportunities will present themselves out that are beyond our capability of imagining. Mm, so true. I, I totally agree. What um, what should we worry about when it comes to social media? If we, if we want to put our, our worries in the right place, what should we be paying attention to? Well, there's no question that there is a dark side. And we, First and foremost, it is important to be aware of problems that can happen. So, you know, whether it is cyber cyber bullying or inappropriate content for the age or for that matter, just inappropriate content, you want to know and have safeguards in place, number one, to try your best to have parental controls or filters that do the best to eliminate that. But secondly, you want to talk to your kids and have an open dialogue with them not just a one-time conversation about being safe online. So that's the extreme that I I definitely think we all need to be cognizant of. The other reality is uh, I believe strongly in balance and moderation. And it's not unlike what we teach our kids about health or finance or other important lessons in life. But, you know, with my son as an example, I like that he spends time in real life with his friends, that he's involved in sports and activities, that he's doing well in school and doing his homework, and then he gets screen time. But I find when some parents are talking to me about their concerns, it's because they've lost that balance and their kids are spending way too much time on online. How do you that's, – that's a great point. I even see it. My kids, I was so motivated because they were, they were so motivated about – 
um, buying a video game console. They put their money together. They organize the whole thing. And then I see that they start to lose themselves on it. How do we how do we rein that back in? If if a parent is out there, maybe they've let their children go, you know, a little too long without some boundaries on their social media. Is there a is there a healthier way to rein that back in? Well, again, you know, it's it's interesting because this past weekend I live up in um, Western Canada and we had a snowstorm like you wouldn't believe. We were snowed in, mm. and so we couldn't get out. We couldn't physically get out with our car to go do things. So, you know, we had to do stuff around. But at one point, my son is really into this game that's caught up uh, with so many teen boys. Uh, Fortnite? Uh, that'd be the one, uh, That's yes. what my kids are addicted to now? Great. Yeah. And, you know, what's actually neat was I didn't know a lot about the game. So I sat with him, and I watched him play, and I watched the interaction. And, yeah, it can be a complete time suck because um, these worlds, you know, they just go on and on. It's a strategy game. It's not just a shooting game. And um, what I found was, you know, on that particular weekend, he went way over how much time he's normally allowed to play. But um, the time that we usually commit is there's actually a study because there are no um, there are no exact guidelines. The Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Society both fail to give um, recommended timelines for kids over the age of five. All that they say is huh. under five, less is better. As they get older, they can be allowed a bit more, but there's no exact number. But I did find a study out of the University of Oxford in the UK that indicated that, believe it or not, four hours and 17 minutes of screen time is kind of this saturation point where it's still healthy. And at first, my reaction was, that's a lot of time. Yeah. But when, you, when your kid is using um, devices for school, like mine does, he uses a, a, a Chromebook and they learn online. And then he comes home and he uses his device to connect with friends. And then he goes and plays Fortnite. It adds up fast. Yeah. So when you're very clear with your son or your daughter about, look, this is what a healthy amount looks like. So I want your help in coming up with what your day should look like. Now, an 11, 12, and 13-year-old, these are great skills to teach your kid about time management. Will they follow it to a T? No. But when you say, okay, buddy, you know, we've been spending a bit more time on Fortnite than we normally do, do you think it's time to do something else? Now they understand why. So I like to treat our kids not just like kids, but that we're raising adults here. And these time management skills will be used for the rest of their lives because I don't know about you, I watched a few too many movies and television this weekend than I probably normally do. And you, you get a little unhealthy balance. Absolutely. So, yeah. Mean, we've all we've all had our vices, right? Um, I mean, yeah. TV, whatever, Atari when I was a kid. What? Um, but you, one of the big things about your book is you focus – Really, uh, I think very intentionally and and specifically on finding a positive approach mm-hmm. to the parenting around social media in the digital world. Because, but talk about why the positive? Because so many of us have kind of started with the negative approach, and we know well, it's not working. Yeah, and it's easy because it actually was the instigator of why I started my book. So I attended a session, a parenting session at my son's school, where the speaker was very right. Everything he said was true, but it was so extreme of all the bad things that can happen. And his solution was, you shouldn't allow your kids to have phones. 
And I know there's a lot of movement um, and motions around like, you know, don't let your kids have phones until certain ages and don't do this and that. And it's all don't, don't, don't. And I was left as a parent who's pretty savvy with technology and social media, kind of even scratching my head going, like, is this realistic? And also, does it magically happen for them on their 18th birthday that they figure this all out? No. So we have to be involved and and committed as parents to help guide our kids. And um, if all we do is no, 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 don't, 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 um, I think it sets our kids up to almost rebel. I don't know about yeah, you, but no, right. I, I had a bit of a rebellious streak in my youth. And so um, instead, if I empower myself with knowledge and education, and I, I challenge my son to not just consume, because there is two types of, of use of, of social media and technology. And that's one where it's very passive and we're just like watching and absorbing versus I actually think Fortnite could be an example of being creative and not just consuming, but actively participating. And there really is strategy. There's communication skills when you're playing with friends online. Um, and I, I view that as productive. Yeah, so, no, I agree. Yeah, but- teaching teaching them to use these critical thinking skills now will only help them later in life. That's why this idea that you were saying that we're raising adults, We've anything we can teach them to and empower them to be a little more self-disciplined, to self-regulate, to manage their time better, uh, even to socialize using their skills and, and their social media is going to be helpful. Again, we're speaking with Nancy Smith, who is the author of the book Social Citizens, A Positive Approach to Social Media and Parenting in the Digital World. She is from Alberta, Canada, has over 12 years of experience teaching about social media issues and use. Nancy, what are some other little uh, bits of advice that you would give us as parents to to help us positively approach our children and their social media use? Yes. Well, another question I frequently get asked is, which apps should parents use to monitor their kids' activities online? And in fact, I don't recommend that. I, instead, uh, and, like, unless you've had a problem, let's be clear. Yeah. If there's been a red flag or a major issue and you want to um, manage their use, I totally get that. But for the majority of us, don't try to catch your kids. Instead, spend your time and energy focused on guiding them. Like what would positive, um, what kind of positive behavior could they show online? Um, I have a, a nephew who's, you know, he's really into Instagram and he's always posting photos of himself, selfies. And I said to him, you've got a challenge. Like, I want you to put yourself out there and tell your story a bit more. Like you do some really cool things. Um, and so instead, he, when he went down to Texas to build houses for Habitat for Humanity, he posted a great photo of himself. And I made a point of calling him and telling him, you know, look, that, that was just a fantastic story you're telling. So again, instead of always coming down on them and what they're posting because we don't understand it, challenge them in a new way to, to create content that's positive. So don't just um, police and monitor. Um, actively engage them in new ways of thinking. That's great. I also love to have my kids teach me social media yes. because they are so good at it. Um, and then they, the more they teach me, the more I understand what they know, what they use, what they don't use, why they use it. 
Well, totally. And I have parents who say, I don't get Instagram. And I say, well, the good news is you don't have to be an expert. You just need to understand it. Have your son or daughter show you. Because my son doesn't actually even post pictures. He just uses the chat feature in the back, and uh, which is private messaging, and also um, Instagram stories, which has some really cool capabilities that unless you have somebody show you, you'll never discover on your own. So true. So true. What other uh, advice do you give us as parents to, to really keep it positive? I think sometimes it's um, really important not to judge. So when you hear of an incident that happens at school, don't immediately assume the worst. Um, it's a great opportunity to open the conversation of things that can happen online that maybe aren't the best. But um, don't assume that just because somebody makes a mistake that, you know, they're a bad kid. Because mistakes will happen. It's how we navigate and how we um, manage it on the other side. I think, too, that it's a great idea to build a community. So if you've got friends with kids in similar ages or even um, parents, uh, friends that are, like, slightly older, kids who've been through it, don't be afraid to ask questions of what's worked and what hasn't for them. Um, And share your experience, too, because... We are a new digital age of parenting. Smartphones have only been out for 10 years, so what we're trying to figure out is really new. Uh, And, and, you know, it takes a community to raise a child. It takes a village, and the same is true online. So good. Um, If you were were, uh, able to give us just one key, one solution, Nancy, that if we just did this one thing with our children and social media, this one thing would would have the biggest impact on our ability to influence them going forward and to help them set them up to be great adults. What would that one thing be? Please don't think that technology is the enemy. It's not. Uh, Take out that fear-based approach and embrace a more open-minded opportunity perspective. And I I promise you, you will see great things happen. That's great stuff. Nancy Smith, thank you so much for your time, your your work there on on your book. When I think about it too, I, boy, I couldn't be more with you on it as I think these kids are going to grow up and we want them to be social citizens. So why not, uh, why not read the book? Social Citizens, a positive approach uh, to social media and parenting in the digital world. It's not your enemy, folks. It's just part of life now. And the more we lead it, the more we understand it, the more we can take it, I think, to a healthier level. This is the Matt Townsend Show, BYU Sports Nation, and our good friends from Sports Nation will be up next. Welcome to Vegas, folks. Well, we're actually still in uh, cold Utah, but uh, we're going to shoot it down now to Vegas, just down I-15 a bit, to our good friends uh, from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem in Viva Las Vegas. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Tuesday, Matty. Hey, thank you. And hey, by the way, uh, good job on the game last night. Way to make it happen. Hey, thank you. We had a huge role yeah, in yeah. what BYU did last Everything, night. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, you, there was something about you guys that, I don't know, you just, you must have, it's drugging the other team. I don't know what happened. Did you get down well, on St. Mary's? Let's not resort to that quite yet. Uh, well, we did what we needed to do. Let's we, just... 
threw out as many jinxes as we possibly could. <laughs> we had karma-infused call-outs of another BYU player. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. oh wow. We, ca- we, we called out Yoli Childs. We said, Jock Lando's going to outscore him. And then we're like, no, Yoli, you need to have a great game. Come had on, his, He had his career-high 33. Career high 33. Career high 33. Unbelievable. Can he do it again tonight? <sighs> we're going there already? Okay. A lot, hold, on, a lot but hold on, Matt. Can we just enjoy the <laughs> fact that BYU there? finally okay. beat St. Mary's? That's huge. 365 days, essentially, of BYU sitting on a 31-point loss in this venue, in the semis against St. Mary's. It had been two years since BYU beat St. Mary's in any basketball game on the men's side. In June, BYU brought in Heath Troyer. They installed new schematic and philosophical you know, the offenses and yeah. defenses with the intent of beating St. Mary's. Paid off. BYU beat St. Mary's in Provo but didn't win the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Dave Rose said last night. They lost in overtime. Then in Moraga, they kind of got worked the last eight minutes. Yoli Childs was sick. That didn't help. But last night was the best win of the season for BYU. The best moment, the best night. Cougar fans soaked it up, enjoyed it, and it was a great night. BYU took out 20th ranked St. Mary's oh. in the semis mm. of this tournament. Beat St. Mary's or Gonzaga for the first time in this tournament. For the first time in 10 years, it's not a one versus two seed matchup in the championship game. So BYU did something that no one's done in this league in 10 years. And Dave Rose has still never lost to an opponent six times in a row. Oh, wow. All these cool streaks, right? Yeah. So just enjoy that, okay? Just hold on. Let's just, just, oh, just I'm enjoying it. Just soak it. Just <sighs> eat it up. Okay, it's... now let's talk about the next game. Okay. Uh, this is going to be a tough one. Uh, Gonzaga's ranked sixth. This is their second home court. This is their tournament. The West Coast Conference happens to sponsor it. Mark Few's name's on the deed, as I mentioned yesterday, for this building, probably. Yeah. It's going to be overwhelming Gonzaga fans tonight. If BYU pulls this off, you could argue this one's oh, the top baby. three wins that Dave Rose has ever had. Oh, boy. Maybe now, they now, can. Me, they got the take, energy. Let me take us back to 2007. BYU played a sixth-ranked team as well in this building, a team called Louisville, mm. coached by Rick Pitino. Yeah. A young but talented BYU team came in here and upset Louisville, who was also ranked sixth in this very building. We did that game on TV. Can BYU summon that kind of performance tonight against the Zags and get into March Madness? Oh. That is 40 minutes away. Also, me shaving my head is 40 minutes away. <laughs> Hold on. Did you make that promise again? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, if BYU, BYU wins the, the West Coast Conference Tournament. Oh, you've done it now. Okay. My family's officially fasting and praying now to bring home your baldness. Boy. That's, that's the hope. That's the hope. And, and, and my, my real concern is, the, did BYU lose, leave anything in the tank? Oh, For man. tonight. They, they obviously expended a lot of energy and emotion last night to yeah. beat St. Mary's. So how much is left? But they all, and when I say all, the four people, including Dave Rose and T.J. Haas and Dalton Nixon and Yoli Childs that spoke last night that I heard said, we feel like this team is built to win three games in a tournament-style format. Really? We'll find out just how much they're uh, up for the task when they have to face essentially – a Kansas-quality basketball team in the West Coast Conference, Gonzaga, their top-10 team, yeah. and they're home away from home. This How is... much do they have left? They can do it. They have a lot. 
They have to. You know, they've had cougar tails. They've had uh, chocolate milk from the cougar dairy. What do they call it? The dairy. I mean, come on. Creamery. The creamery. It's they're ready. Let's do it now. Excuse me. Oh, I like that you're yelling now. I'm, Welcome to the fold, Matt. You guys have. BYU, BYU could do it. It's, it's a tall task, but BYU could do it. I, I just wonder, everything that BYU worked for in the offseason wasn't necessarily to win this game. It was to win last night's game, in my opinion. Can BYU muster something special from a different reserve to win this game? Because yeah. to beat Gonzaga on this court, it takes an incredible effort. Wow! So is that – have you just pretty much done your show or – Basically. Okay. Those are my thoughts. I basically – if you don't watch it, you got my thoughts. But we want you to watch it slash oh, there's, to it. There's, and there's much more. Much more, yes. TJ Hawes, Dalton Nixon from uh, BYU's team. We talked to them after the game last night. We're going to talk to Blaine Fowler. We're, I'm busting out the movie trailer. Oh, boy. The, the BYU beat St. Mary's. They're going for the title. Tonight, movie trailer. <laughs> It'll be at the end of the show, so you know. Okay, so everybody has okay. to stick through the end of the show. Stick through the end. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be worth it. Yeah. Now, just so we know, you guys, but you're way busy. The game last night was really late. Have you had any chance to just go golf, to go miniature no. golf, to watch a movie? What are you doing? I mean, your family okay, wants to know. Family. Your family. Oh, is your family there? Yeah, they've been here with me. That's great. That's his family's here, too. Mm-hmm. They left yesterday, but they were this here. Is, this is our first day where we don't have games at, at, at noon and 2. I don't know what to do with myself. So we're like, what do we do after the show? Maybe Before today's the day that you go, maybe go catch a movie or something. Perhaps. Perhaps. Or I just can a always big old movie. fat we nap. Something else. Maybe there's all those, there's all those uh, movies from the Oscars that you probably haven't seen, so maybe you could go catch one of those. <laughs> Shape of Water, maybe. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to give you I'll too just many watch ideas. Finding Nemo. If I want to watch some fish, That's... Finding Nemo. All right, guys, you're the best. Keep it up, and then uh, tomorrow you'll be traveling, so I'm sure we'll have some other answer. But uh, we'll be talking about how Gonzaga lost. Gonzaga. Oh lost. my goodness. That's- You'll the be hope. talking if that's what you're talking about. You'll be talking about Jerem shaving his head again. That'll, That'll be, be awesome. the greatest thing. By the I way, where to do it. where will he shave his head? Will it be down in Vegas next or will it be up here? It'll be next week on the show so that the team can do it. Yeah, the team could participate. Yeah. That would be fun. We need to get Schroyer and Yoli and yeah. Dalton Nixon in there. We'll let them Cheers. can they just shave it, but then let me get my razor. I've got a really nice razor that I could like I could shave We're it not clean. Doing the razor part. We're just doing the It's a straight edge razor. I, it'll plug. be fine. We'll just put a little cream on there and I'll just shave it's yeah. fine. Summer do. Okay. No, no cream. No, last time. <laughs> no cream. No. Good luck, gentlemen. Ah, oh, boy. Jeff, why don't you ever shave your head for anything? I offered to do so, if you recall, when you were not here. You were out of town. I was yeah. hosting for you. And I said, if Matt is back on the show tomorrow, my head will be shaved. And you didn't come back. Well, because I think you knew I was out of town. Like, once I'm on a cruise ship or whatever... You know I'm not coming back. So you weren't on a cruise ship. Why don't you? Why don't you do? Why don't you shave your head? I got it. Let's do a little. Let's do one now. If I'm not here Friday, <laughs> you'll shave your head. Why? That's why. What? What? I, I think I would want you to be here. So the dare would be: if you are here on Friday, the head would be shaved. 
Yeah. I, now I, that's tempting. I think we ought to do something different. I, I think we ought to make it more exciting. If I'm not here hey, Friday, you'll shave your head. This mane is not easy, all right? It takes a lot of effort to look this good. And I don't want to just shave it all off and erase all the work. Hmm. Well, it's kind of a weird way to look at it. Uh, and I don't know that I'd call it a mane because you're not necessarily a lion. You're not not a lion. Hey, uh, let's talk heroes now. Um, an Australian man, Zoran Bogle- Bogleich, was enjoying a late dinner at a restaurant when his neighboring hardware store burst into flames around 9 p.m. As the blaze rapidly uh, took hold, fueled by chemicals stocked inside of the hardware store, people started to yell fire and a concerned crowd began to gather. Mr. Bogleich, uh, 36, heard people shouting for help from a row of houses behind the hardware store. He told local media that he instinctively ran toward the cries. I jumped about five fences to get to some people yelling for help and ended up grabbing a hose and uh, that uh, had been handed to him. And they were holding back the fire uh, on the residential side for about 15 minutes before the fire crews arrived. It was pretty crazy. There was corrugated iron in front of me. And it was glowing red hot. There were barrels of exploded explosives that were uh, several feet away from us that were uh, shooting shrapnel and debris all over the place. Anyway, he did what he can. He, he did what he could, and eventually, eighty firefighters arrived to get it under control. But if it hadn't been for, for Zorin uh, that day, a lot of people uh, could have lost their life. So he's now being hailed as a hero. So Zoran Blagich, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Again, you just got to jump in when it's needed. That's what makes a hero. And the best heroes really out there are the ones that are just taking care of the people around them. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.